This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. You have been told that a certain dark wizard is at large again. This is a lie. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is the show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. How's it going? Doing pretty well. Very excited to talk about this one. I mean, I've been excited to talk about pretty much every Harry Potter film, but this one has its own uh, things to be excited about. Uh, today, we're talking about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the beginning of the uh, Yates era. And to help us talk about that, um, we are joined by our friend Chad Hopkins from the Cinescope podcast. Welcome back. Glad to be back. Glad to be talking Harry Potter. Uh, as a movie podcaster myself, I have talked about Harry Potter, but only once. We talked about the very first Harry Potter movie way early in Cinescope's uh, early run and haven't talked about one since. And so it was nice to break out the, the box set and pop in a Harry Potter movie for the first time in a long time. Nice. I know we had you on for underrated. Do we have you? Have you had you on since we uh, rebooted into franchise fatigue? I yes, because I did Indiana Jones. Oh, way back at the beginning. Yeah. Oh yeah, first King of the first Crystal series. Skull. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And a funny Harry yeah. Potter connection. We had you on for uh, the Prince of Persia movie directed by Mike Newell. Or yes, but we are not talking about the Mike Newell <laughs> one today. Not today. <laughs> and I haven't. I haven't yet listened to y'all's uh, <laughs> Goblet of Fire episode, which I'm sure is going to be like great fun. It, it was. <laughs> Unlike the movie. <laughs> if you hate the movie, it'd be a lot of fun. If you're a fan of it, okay. which a lot of people are, yeah, I think people I will are going to be curious at us. <laughs> I will say it's been a long time since I have seen Goblet of Fire, but the last time I watched it, I remember thinking this isn't as bad as I remembered it being. Now that is not an endorsement, <laughs> but it is saying that it is not the worst thing I've watched. And I do think the tasks and the ending of that movie in general are pretty good. It does certainly have its moments. Yeah. yeah. I don't hate it. I, I like, I like it fairly well, but. So for this episode, we're talking about the fifth Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, and then also like us on Facebook, where you can keep up to date with all the latest episodes and give feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought about Order of the Phoenix. Alexis said, it's my favorite book and movie. Everything about going up against Ubridge and the Wall of Rules somehow feels even more timely now. Plus, Luda Lovegood and the and Dumbledore versus Voldemort fight is uh, she uses like the really <laughs> A-OK symbol. That said, one of the best ones. And Kevin said, Azkaban is the best looking and best directed film in the series that paved the way for the rest of the films, but this one is pretty good. So moving into the behind the scenes story of this film, uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix was published in on June 21st of 2003. Uh, that would have been between the Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban films. It was the longest book in the series yet at 766 pages, which is about 130 pages longer than Goblet of Fire, which was also which was already massive. Um, Mike Newell was offered uh, the chance to direct this, the fifth film, but he declined. Uh, thank heavens. <laughs> uh, so once again, uh, they searched far and wide to find a new director. Um, once again, they offered the job to Guillermo del Toro, and once again, he declined. They really wanted him for this for the series. 
Other filmmakers that turned down the offer were uh, Jean-Pierre Genet. Uh, he's from such films as Amelie and Alien Resurrection, two wildly different sounding films. Um, Matthew Vaughn from Kick-Ass, you know, Kingsman and the X-Men First Class. I like him a lot, but I don't know if I want him in Harry Potter. Yeah, that would have been weird. I mean, I'd say maybe it would have been cool, but... <sighs> like, even with his X-Men film, like, that's, like, the, the kind of, like, the sexiest, more kind of rebellious one. Like, I don't... I don't think Harry Potter really needs that energy. Like, <laughs> the old, well, the only example of that energy we have is from Michael Newell. And he's definitely better than that, but I, I was just like, I don't need him to try and, like, edgy, you know, turn Harry Potter edgy. And then uh, Myra Nair, probably best known to modern audiences from uh, the Disney film Queen of Cotway, was also offered, but she uh, she also turned it down. I heard that was really good. Yeah, which is weird. Like, it's such a little film, but you just keep hearing about it occasionally. Ultimately, the man chosen for the job was British TV director David Yates. Uh, he'd received acclaim for miniseries like State of Play and Sex Traffic previously. Um, and one of the reasons they chose him was the way he, his uh, series would often handle very dark material with strong political uh, and, and like, socially relevant themes. Steve Clovis decided to take a break from the series for this film to focus on other projects. This was done with the understanding that he would return for Half-Blood Prince. Was just, I'm just going to sit this one out. Personally, I think he looked at the book's length and was like, yeah, nah, let someone else do this. <laughs> um, uh, so Michael Goldenberg was, uh, was brought in to fill in for this film. Uh, he's the co-writer on Contact, the, uh, you know, the Robert Zemeckis film, uh, the 2003 Peter Pan film, which... I hear very little about, but everything I've ever heard is like highly high praise. Um, and he's one of four credited writers on Green Lantern. <laughs> and honestly, I don't really feel that difference uh, that much. Um, like there's nothing, at least in the writing, like stylistically, sure, it's very different. But as far as the writing, it feels like he just ste he steps in and does a very good job carrying on what's been established. Yeah, the voice of the characters feels very retained to me yeah which is like it could have been lost so easily you know new writer new director um and yeah but they they managed to keep they keep it going i guess that's a lot of that's all, all as on the producers as well uh so for the film's cast something to, uh kind of funny that i noticed with this one is because it was it's such a long book and there are so many cut threads there's a lot of characters who are like well we hired this person because we this is in the book, but we didn't know if we were actually going to keep that. And then this person all of a sudden wasn't in it because this subplot was cut. And like, so there's, there was a lot of like, even kind of late into the writing game of like, well, we're hiring people. We don't even know if we want to cast for that character because we don't know if they're going to be in it. They were in it in this draft and not that. Um, this is just, I haven't, at least I haven't found that being as big of an issue, but again, I guess it's because this one is just, it's such a big It kind of wasn't the first film. I think a lot of the students were named like, like in the credits, but you know they never speak or anything. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but to get to the like the the specifics of the uh, the new additions, we have a uh, Helena Bo Helena Bonham Carter as a uh, Bellatrix Lestrange. So that role actually didn't initially go to Helena Bonham Carter. Apparently, as early as two thousand five, there were rumors uh, that Helen McCrory had like gotten the role. Um, and then it was actually announced that she had been uh, cast as Bellatrix uh, early 2006. However, she, uh, in an interview later that year, she revealed that she was actually three months pregnant and ended up withdrawing from the film because she wouldn't be able to do, uh, you know, all the, the battle sequences in the Ministry of Magic. However, she didn't end up 
fully leaving the series because then she was cast as Narcissa Malfoy uh, in the Half-Blood Prince and then was obvi- obviously became a mainstay of the series from then yeah, on. She, she uh, passed away earlier this year. Um, I only knew her from the series, yeah. but like there was an enormous outpouring of love. So apparently she was quite beloved. Yeah. Uh, Imelda Staunton as Dolores Umbridge, Ooh. who we all love. Uh, plays it so well, though. Um, Timothy Bateson voices the house elf creature. Um, Tony Maudsley plays Hagrid's half-brother, Grop. Um, Catherine Hunter appears as Dur- the Dursley neighbor, Mrs. Fig. Um, George Harris plays Kingsley Atena, now of Mandalorian fame, uh, in that one really good episode. Uh, plays Nymphadora Tonks. Uh, we have Ivana Lynch uh, as Luna Love. Apparently, this character had like fifteen thousand girls who appeared at the like the casting call, <laughs> uh, and the line was reportedly like over a mile of just of girls waiting to to go into the the casting room. The biggest name that I could find for somebody else who auditioned for the role was. Uh, I always mess up the name. Is it Sorshi Ronan? Sersha is what I hear. Sersha, okay. Sersha Ronan uh, auditioned for the role. By the time, was considered too young. Yeah, she would have been doing like atonement at this point. Some other, just some funny notes that kind of go along with what I was saying about all of the, the confusion about who was going to be in it. Um, there were other minor roles that were cut. Um, apparently, there was a draft of Order of the Phoenix where... Anna would reappear as Gilderoy Lockhart. Um, like that was cut early on, but like it was, it got far enough apparently where there there were talks about what it would look like for him to come back. I would have loved that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I like, I want to know what what Lock like erased memory Lockhart. Like, what's he doing now? That could have been fun. Uh, but Tiana Benjamin was scheduled to role of Angelina Johnson, who's now you know captain of the Gryffindor Quidditch team. But she ended up withdrawing because uh, she played. She was starring in uh, EastEnders, and but that ended up being not as big of a deal because as further like more and more drafts were made, the entire subplot of of Quidditch was just completely removed uh, from the entire screenplay. So we we don't really, you know, she probably would have only been seen the same way these other actors, like the other student actors, were. Uh, kind of background characters. All right. So filming began in February of 2006 and went until December of that year. These things had just massively long schedules. Um, although there was a two month break in the spring so that Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson could take various school exams. I'm assuming that Rupert Grint had just dropped out of school at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> Method act. Exactly. Uh, Polish, Polish cinematographer Sławomir Idziak uh, served as DP. Uh, he's worked a lot with uh, Krzysztof Zanussi of like the Three Colors trilogy. Um, he's done films like uh, Gattaca and Anton Fuqua's King Arthur and a personal favorite of mine, Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down. Really good looking movie. Yeah, those are all really look, like really good looking movies. Once again, the film was shot at the Leavesden Film Studios and various locations around England and Scotland. Uh, Yates brought on a dance choreographer and movement coach Paul Harris to help design a movement style for the one combat. Um, which I think worked out really well. Uh, speaking of wand work, uh, while they were filming the climax, Helena Bottom Carter accidentally burst uh, Matthew Lewis, who plays Neville. She burst his eardrum with her wand, like accidentally stuck it in his ear while her character was holding Neville hostage. Uh, that just hmm. sounds incredibly painful. Um, but he seems okay now. <laughs> It'll be all right. 
for the film's score, uh, Nicholas Hooper actually came on to score. I was looking through his credits, and it looks like he had been he he had worked with uh, Yates in the past. Yeah, um, yeah. Yates brought him over. Also, he brought his editor Mark Day, who basically did everything before that and everything since. Um, he he seems to like working with the same people over and over. Um, you know, pretty pretty big shoes filling. You know, having the having a john williams and um patrick doyle as your predecessors but and he uh, had done any kind of big films at this point yeah he is very much like the musical like the composer equivalent of of yates coming into here's harry potter (laughs) do do with this what you will for the film's release uh it had its world premiere in tokyo japan actually on june 28 2007 uh and then it kind of had a wide release over a two-week period starting july 11th Mm-hmm. Oh, one more thing to mention for the post-production is that the climax for the movie was post-converted into 3D for the IMAX release. Um, this was prior to the, the uh, 3D craze brought on by IMAX. Uh, but he, I was looking at kind of the numbers, but even before uh, Avatar came out, I could tell that like every year a few more big films were kind of hopping onto the 3D thing. Uh, so it was already kind of an upward trend. <laughs> then Avatar came, uh, I think, two years later. And and on every film is in three you three know, D for nearly a decade. Uh, I'm so I'm so glad that's over. Like it kind of just quietly fizzled out, and, and just realized like, oh wait, I don't have to like choose like no, I don't want the three D screening. I want the two D screening now for every big movie, uh, which is nice. But um, I, I think th- this climax would probably look pretty cool in three D though. Yeah, every now there are some movies where you're like, ah, okay, yeah, this was dope. Man of Steel was phenomenal in three D. Really. Huh. The, the the final battle was like oh yeah I spectacular so. when he does that weird thing like where the camera is right fixed behind him when he's flying and so we're just like the sharp 90 degree angles between the skyscrapers when he's like looking around for flying around looking for zod it's it like blew my mind yeah i, I saw um the i saw gravity in 3d that was pretty cool weirdly one of the best 3d films i saw was insurgent the second divergent film uh not a great movie but i do remember at least being mildly impressed by the 3d there generally it was just like oh this is dark and blurry and i hate it yeah the fourth pirates in 3d was a nightmare Uh, oh that (laughs) it was a nightmare without the 3d too hey i actually like on stranger tides but that's neither here nor there uh okay All right, so moving into our discussion on the film, I want to get y'all's history with this particular movie. Uh, starting Actually, since uh, it's your first time with for the Harry Potter series, Chad, you want to give us like a, a really brief overview of your history with Harry Potter and then Order of the Phoenix in particular and kind of how your thoughts on it have evolved over the years? Absolutely. So my overall experience with Harry Potter, I am a book first person. Um, I started reading the books, I think I got the first one for Christmas of 98. Um, and I was in second grade at the time and I ended up reading the whole first book before my birthday, which is a month, less than a month later. And, uh, I liked it so much that my grandmother bought me the second and third, which were already out at that time as well. And from that point forward, my grandmother bought me each Harry Potter book. And then when the first movie came out in 2001, I said, hey, Grana, you've got to go <laughs> with me to see this movie. And she was like, oh, dear Lord, I have to read this book. I have to go see this movie, I guess. And she was hooked too. So from then on, every book release, she would buy me the book. I would read it. I would pass it on to her and she would read it. That's awesome. And so that that was my book experience. And uh, like I mentioned, I mean, we we did go see the movie theater or movie together and 
uh, I saw every Harry Potter movie, I believe opening weekend, if not opening night for each of them. Um, and I don't remember how many times I would have seen Order of the Phoenix in theaters. And honestly, I don't remember what my initial reaction would have been. I was never super negative on the Harry Potter films as they were coming out. Even Goblet of Fire, I think probably had merit in my mind when I first watched it. Uh, but I, I've always liked this one. Uh, looking back now as a, a more seasoned fan and uh, more critical eye. And though this is not my favorite of the series, in fact, I don't really know even how I would rank it. Although I'm sure you're going to ask me that again mm -hmm. later and I'll have an answer, I guess. <laughs> got an hour and a half um, to prepare. Yeah, I, I'll get there. Uh, but I do like that it brought David Yates to the series. And I do like that starting here, we have some tonal consistency uh, for the rest of the series, as far as having a, a same director and uh, not the same composer, but a lot of similar elements continue on forward in the franchise. And this is the beginning of that. And I'm thankful to it for those reasons. And how old would you have been when this came out? When this came out? What, well, what year did it come out? This was a 2008, oh, right? I think I, I was thinking to or, or 07 or 08, but I wasn't sure. Um, in which case I would have been 15 or 16. 07. All right. And uh, how about you, James? Yeah, so uh, as we've established that, I, starting with Goblet of Fire, um, those were the ones that I watched for, for the first time early this year, uh, after having finished the book series early this year. Um, and the thing is, I, I hear a lot about like the David Yates era, but really from uh, The Order of the Phoenix on, these were the films that I had like almost no familiarity or even like idea of like I, I grew up with the first two had seen the third one knew its reputation really loved it and then heard you and another friend like I, I heard all about Goblet of Fire <laughs> from you and, and another friend before watching it but with when it when it came to this film and on I'm like I really feel like I'm flying into the Yates era semi-blind all I know is that it they, it seems to be like pretty well liked, like everybody seems to enjoy these four uh, mostly. Uh, and I turned out, it turned out I really liked this one a lot. Uh, and I'm glad that I got the second viewing though, because having watched, uh, watched these so soon after finishing the books, I had the books still very heavily on my mind. And, you know, that's not necessarily an issue with the first three to me, even with Prisoner of Azkaban, which does kind of excise more than the first two, I still I'm like, oh no, this I have no issue enjoying all of this as a film, and that but but starting with Goblet of Fire, there were these like ah this happened in the book, and they cut this out or this wasn't like that, and so I watching Order of the Phoenix, I was like, man, it really does feel like we're kind of getting a highlight reel of the book, like we're we're cutting out a lot of stuff, and so I wasn't able to fully appreciate it just as a here's the movie here's the opening closing just this is your two hours and 20 minutes with it um i was constantly thinking about what it cut out so anyways this this rewatch i was able to appreciate it a lot more just as as a film without the the details of the book so fresh in my mind yeah so i uh I read through all, as I said, I've, I've read through all the series. I read through all the series pretty quickly and watched each movie afterwards. Um, I really liked this one when I first saw it. 
I think it, it diminished a little bit on rewatches just because of mainly as James was saying, the feeling of it's kind of a highlight reel of the book rather than a full and complete film on its own. Uh, but I really loved it on this last viewing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. I th- we we got to talk about uh, David Yates and I, I don't know why, but he really fascinates me because um, he's a filmmaker that just came out of pretty much nowhere, just mostly doing some small BBC work. And then he took over Harry Potter and he's pretty much been there ever since. And I, w- I was looking at like some numbers as best I can tell, as far as like filmmakers who have directed, you know, multiple fi- films with like over $125 million plus budgets. Like he, I think the, the only person who's directed any more than him is Michael Bay who has 10. And then him and Christopher Nolan are tied with eight apiece, but he's got more coming along. Um, so like it's, he just comes out of TV and now he's like one of the biggest, as far as like the, the size of the movies and the amount of movies, one of the biggest directors. And yet he's only almost, almost exclusively been inside this Harry Potter universe. Um, and he strikes me as like a, a very passionate person with a really strong point of view. He's got, got a lot of like thematic interests. And usually with fil- filmmakers like that, they'll like do, they'll do a couple franchise films that kind of jump to go do something smaller or, um, or, or maybe they'll come back, but they usually take breaks in between, but he just keeps on going. And it seems like he's just completely happy, which is, which is, is honestly, unlike any other filmmaker I've seen working at this scale, it's just kind of fascinating to me. And, and another, another kind of consistent theme I've seen through his films, and I've, I've gone back and watched several of his, uh, older things in preparation for this is that he's very, very socially conscious in his films. Like, but it's not in a way that feels preachy i think he's one of the better filmmakers at working in like a very pol- you know quote-unquote political stories but in a way that just do- it doesn't it can get so cringy particularly nowadays where it just feels like someone's you know yelling at you and just trying to give teach you a lesson um but you look at his stories like uh the adaptation of the way we live now it's about like corrupt financial systems in the in the 1800s state of play it's a political thriller about uh political corruption sex trade you know dealing with the sex trade and then going into his Harry Potter films, this one is obviously very political. Um, you know, the, the two Deathly Hallows, you have like the world under a fascist occupation. Then you go into the, the Fantastic Beasts and we're getting into the American wizarding government, which has its own problems and the, you know, the rising demagogue. Like he's like even, even Tarzan, he sets it during like the, the imperial colonization of Congo by a uh, King Leopold II of Belgium. Like he's, he takes these stories and is always adds in some kind of interesting political twist uh any of y'all have any kind of thoughts on that that side of his, his uh storytelling i don't have much experience well i don't have any experience with him outside of harry potter i'll be honest uh, i just haven't explored his filmography um but it was something that really stood out to me when i was watching this last night how political it was and it has been a while since i read the book um and i don't remember if it was as political i mean obviously there the the like umbrage and the in the the messing of things at Hogwarts by the ministry and that angle is very political inherently but it do, did seem elevated more than i remembered in the film and so i don't know if that was just an aspect of yates bringing that out if that's a trend in his filmmaking or if it was actually that political in the movie or in the book and he just adapted it very well i think it was in the book like there's and as the series goes on, then you look at Rowling's other stuff. Like that seems to likewise be a very strong interest, you know, in, in mm-hmm. looking, exploring her worlds, including the political angle. 
Yeah, it's it's funny that you'd said that you picked up on it uh, for the first time last night. I I did as well rewatch, although I guess this is only my second time watching. But it wasn't even necessarily an idea that I had had while reading the book. Um, I was like, oh, this is a terrible teacher. They're wanting to, you know, clamp down on Hogwarts. But like the, the idea of it being an actually political work just wasn't really crossing my mind. Um, and I, I picked which up I, on which it. Which I think is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, it, I mean, it's just very ingrained in the in the story as opposed to, oh, this is the political one. This is the blah, blah, blah. Um, but like Chad, I, I really don't have any sort of experience with him outside of Harry Potter because I haven't even seen the, uh, the Fantastic Beasts quite yet. Um, but I did like just watching it last night. I'm like, yeah, that you you get a lot more of the I don't know, political manipulation and this idea of of using the media and this stuff. I don't know if it's just because we're in such so much more of a politically charged uh, environment, but it, there are ideas that feel more, I guess, uh, relevant or or in the in the conversation. Yeah, a recommendation from his filmography would be a state of play. It's the BBC miniseries. It's one of the best uh, political thrillers I've ever seen. Um, I just watched it a couple days ago. It was a lot of fun. And like, it's, there's a, there's a lot of, with this film in particular. Like, I think I don't know if it, Rowling was intentionally going for it, but I'm getting a lot of like Neville Chamberlain kind of on the on the uh, the brink of World War II with the, the British Prime Minister kind of. And then just like the rest of Europe kind of like trying their best to, to deny the rising threat of Hitler. Like, and, and that's, that's like a very, very big thing for British history. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I feel like I'm getting out of, you know, the, the treatment of fudge and the ministry of, in particular with this story, mm. you know, continuing on with our discussion of Yates, um, what do you guys think of like hit, you know, his filmmaking and like what he, what he in particular among the other directors brings uniquely to the Harry Potter series. I'll start with you, Jed. I think the thing that would immediately come out to even a very casual moviegoers eye is the, the newspaper sequences. Yes. And that almost is mm. a, a staple of all of his other films. We don't have a newspaper sequence exactly like this in every single film, but there's always something similar where there's this, montage-esque kind of journey through uh speeding through some chapters maybe of the books where we get a lot of information and i think the newspaper sequence in this one uh which is uh the rise of umbrage in the hogwarts and the, the appointment as high inquisitor and seeing all the decrees and her reigning over the school uh i think it's a really well done sequence and i it's highlighted really well by music as well. And you get to see Imelda Staunton at her uh, most evil, <laughs> not her most evil, but like that sickly sweet evil that is masking what's really underneath that we see later. Um, I, I just love how efficient it is in really amping up the dislike you have for the character. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. That's something that, really stood out the first time. And then I kind of forgot about when it happened again. I'm like, oh yeah, this is where he starts doing like this cool stuff. <laughs> uh, I like, I like how, I don't know, it just feels so visually inventive. I, I've been watching a lot of like older movies lately 
from the 40s. And there's so many of those kind of like newspapers just kind of fly in front of the screen with all the headlines. And I, I really love that kind of stuff. And so this seems like a really cool magic version of that. Like it feels like just flying through uh, all of these different headlines feels like the, the Wizarding World equivalent of that kind of classic montage sequence. Um, something else that really stands out about him as a as a director coming on here that you really see going forward is, I, I don't know how best to describe it, but they're just, there's something that just feels so crisp about the way the movies look. Like, the compositions just feel really nice and planned, and, like, the colors feel super intentional. Uh, like, the camera work is really cool. Like, there's all these nice, wide shots. There's, there's just something so steady about it like there's like a really kind of steady filmmaking to it but not steady in this kind of uniform way like he, he he really has a very distinct voice and look to it uh i don't know how really else to describe it but there's just there's just something about it that's really striking yeah i i adore how this film looks and like his his style evolves very distinctly between each and every installment he's in um and the interesting thing about this one in particular is I feel like he doesn't tie himself down to any particular technique or style. There's a lot of very kind of wide angle shots with a constantly restless camera, very similar to Quran in that way. But then he'll also like, he'll just go from like a lot of like slow-mo and wide long takes to this very staccato sharp uh, editing to, you know, for like to get a very kind of herky jerky feel, particularly in emotionally intense scenes. Um, but going back to what y'all were talking about, the newspapers, one thing I noticed with watching State of Play is just how good he and his editor, Mark Day, are at getting across just mountains of information in an easily digestible way. That That's a show about like reporters, so there's just it's a constant flow of information. And this this is the biggest, the longest book in the series, and, and not only that, it's the one that really expands beyond Hogwarts. The first four books feel like they're they're about Hogwarts, and we stay there. This one, the 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 wider implications of the Wizarding World kind of come into play, um, and so like he has to he's, there's a, there's just a constant turnover of you know sequences and, and information. <laughs> he goes to the uh, kind of the Quran. Um, uh, transition well a lot. There's so many like really cool creative transitions just getting us from scene to scene. And I think it does come, it does at times come to the, at the detriment of the film. Just this is a very rushed movie. I feel like it has to just constantly be moving and there's so much to tell that it, it never fully, it, it, I don't know. There are mo there are scenes where it finds its stride, but overall it, it does feel like it, it's in such a hurry. I think it would have benefited a little bit to slow down. Maybe he had like a, um, a runtime limit or something, but even like even with that complaint, I'm still so impressed by the amount of just information and emotion and scenes and exposition he was able to just kind of glide through. It's it's such a slick movie. It's it's like it's so easy to watch. It, 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 there's never it, there's not a moment where you feel bored or like you just it doesn't it's not going anywhere. It's such just so confident and tight in its structuring. Like you would never know that this. Not like not only was it his first blockbuster, it's his first theatrical film. It's wild. And one thing I thought about in those newspaper sequences, just to linger on them a little bit longer, is uh, that you can focus on dis on on distinct parts of it with each rewatch, or you could rewind and 
watch again and you'd find different bits of information. So you obviously get a lot just from watching uh, Umbridge interact with the students and Filch nailing up the decrees and then all of the, the nonsense that Fudge is spewing to the newspapers. You get lots from just that. And then each time you watch, you're going to catch different headlines. And mm -hmm. you can look not just at like the main big font headline. There's always something off to the side that's going to hint towards that as well, or like expands on it, or there's always something new to discover in that sequence. And so it really works on multiple levels as far as communicating to the audience. Speaking of that attention to detail, something I noticed was how he worked with actors. Like, I feel like this, for the last two films, like uh, Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire, they're, they feel much more they're, like they're hairy stories and Ron and Hermione kind of come in and come and go inside of them. I feel like Yates, when he takes over, he finds a way to really make the trio feel like a consistent group. Um, and like, and, and the interesting thing I noticed is like, is watch the side characters or background actors in any given scene. Yes. I feel like he really worked with everyone to every single scene. They have their own story. They're going through their own reactions, their own, so like, even though he's not even, you're not even necessarily pointing the camera at them. They don't even necessarily have a line, but particularly uh, Rupert and Emma, but just everyone, it, it just makes the world feel so much more rich. And like, if you are, if you're looking for, like, I want to know what Ron's is going through in this scene. There is something happening with him, something happening with, with, a, with, with a Hermione or Neville. Like there's always just, there's so much depth to be seen in all the background performances. And it really... In, in a film that is such an ensemble piece, um, it really helps because I do feel like a lot of side characters would get lost in the previous two films. Um, and that, that didn't feel like as much of a problem. Uh, um, just Ron and Hermione, they, they felt much more present, even though they might not have had any actual more screen time. Yeah, and well, even, even beyond that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, even beyond just the trio, uh, something that I picked up on was... Uh, there's a lot of background stuff going on just with Jenny. Mm -hmm. um, like this scene where they're walking across the wooden bridge after having everybody sign up and, you know, Hermione mentions, like, like with the, the all the friends are walking together and everybody's smiling and everybody's happy. And then Hermione mentions the thing with Cho not being able to take her eyes off of her or off of Harry and everybody else remains the same and all of a sudden the smile leaves Jenny's face. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's just, that's a little bitty thing that's there. But it's cool. And then, uh, like there's this whenever Harry goes to Cho while she's looking at the the picture of uh, Cedric, there's there's like a the ma a main shot of Ginny who looks back, but then we cut away and we just come back to Harry walking towards him. But in the background, Ginny's still kind of standing there staring at him, and yeah. it takes her a little longer to go back up. And it's like it's these little things in the background. It's like these these that isn't even. Like the last time we even touched on that was her crush in Chamber of Secrets. That's not even really anything that's involved in the story right now. But Yates is still aware that that's that's how she feels right now. So when we have these chances, let's show that. Yeah, I was going to mention even a character like Percy, who doesn't speak a line in this movie, appears, I think, three different times. And there's some things you can sort of assume from his inclusion and in the context in which he's included. The first time we see him is at the hearing where he's seated next to Fudge and taking notes as Harry is interrogated and nearly convicted. And then we see him again when they go to uh, arrest Dumbledore later in the movie. And he's there to assist with that. And he like grabs Harry by the scruff of his collar. And 
that might have actually been the third one. There was one other time that he showed up, but is he like uh, in his pajamas at the end when all the at the, w- end, the ministry I think officials I actually come wrote out? Down exactly. Um, in the in the Department of Mysteries, yeah, he shows up. Yeah, they're at the very end, and it, it's at Fudge's right hand, and we don't get any of the story behind why Percy is so buddy buddy with Fudge in these movie or in this movie in particular, or why he seems to be so antagonistic to Harry. But it is that little background thing that you you should be able to recognize. Hey, isn't that Percy? I, he well, he was there earlier. What's he doing treating Harry this way? And it gives uh, book fans a reward for paying attention to things like that, and it gives non-book fans or people who just haven't read them uh something to to ponder yeah and that's going to be a consistent thread running through yates's time is because these are such massive dense books with so many subplots and things happening there's a lot of like elements from the book that would have taken chapters or reduced to oh like a background sight gag or like the character walks across like like moments like like percy like that could have been any you know random ministry person but it was Percy in the books. So he's going to put Percy there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that can be kind of a double-edged sword, depending on how much focus. Sometimes it, it just kind of flows right along. And, you, and if you know, you know, if you don't, it doesn't bother you. But I think there are some kind of nods in this book. And then it will continue on. Like they, they nod to something from the book and it, it, it kind of, it, I think it, it's to the detriment of the film um, for me. Like, like things like Mrs. Fig, like introducing her out of the blue there she has like a one minute, a couple lines, like we should know her, and she's gone. <laughs> there is a lot of like them introducing elements in these later films and just like acting like, oh, they, they've always been there. You, you know who this person is. You know what this subplot's about. And we don't, if we haven't. Right. And like, I think like Grop, like he shouldn't even in the book, <laughs> but like putting him in this movie is kind of ridiculous. Um, Even things like the Cho Chang romance or like the flashes of like James Potter bullying Snape, like things that. They're meaningful in the book because they're given time and development, well, except for a crop, but I guess they're <laughs> um, like they, they, there's story in the book, but here it's just, it's a moment and then it's over. Never mentioned again. It just, I feel like it, I wish he kind of, they, they would have been a bit more confident in just like, we can't tell the story. So just get rid of it. Like, it, and just kind of smooth it over, give that time to developing a different story arc or something. Um, I, it gets a little worse later on. I think like just there, there are some pretty egregious examples in, the, in, the, in like the, the last two films in particular, but um, it's just something interesting about just Yates is so determined to try and cram in as many book details. And I like it a lot, but occasionally it will backfire. Um, with Mrs. Ficta, I, don't they mention that she didn't become a neighbor until after Cedric's death? No, she was... Well, the way they framed it in the movie was she said that she was asked to watch over Harry after the events of the end of Goblet of Fire. Yeah. That's the way they framed it in this movie, but that's not the case. We, we get right. Mrs. Big back is, in like book one, yeah. I think. She's, she's yeah. Which is why I think it, it works in the movie, though, because yeah. it, it isn't necessarily an example of, oh, you know this person. It's like, oh, no, we the, the plot kind of makes makes it make sense. Like, oh, she's, she's only been here since that point. She's not like a... An established neighbor that we all kind of know and love. I must have missed that. Um, line. Mm-hmm. I definitely see where you're coming from. I think, and I don't know if it's because I just there is so much filling in the blanks that I don't mind so much. Um, like with the Cho Chang thing, I, I I really I like that that's in it just because I feel like that is 
it, it doesn't take away too much time, but I do think it contributes something meaningful, which is this continues that trend of coming of age that was really kind of, kind of started in Azkaban and pushed more and Goblet of Fire and, and here, like he's stepping up to become, Gabe is smiling when I mentioned Goblet of Fire, just so people <laughs> know. Uh, but it's, there's this idea of stepping up, this idea of becoming more of a man uh, and having this kind of be there of like, do, is it smart to try to do anything here? Or should I let it? Like, is this something? Is it is it the wrong timing with what just happened with Cedric? Is I don't know. Like, it's it's not there. It's not there long enough to be like uh, this is a bit too cumbersome. But I I don't think it's there short enough to feel like well that that kind of came out of nowhere. I think it's a it's well handled for what's there, but it kind of fizzles out and just disappears. At the end, it just—it's the thing that like they, yeah. they do pretty well with it for the first half, and then they do the weird thing where it was her who acts, you know, who was forced to betray them through Veritaserum, and there's like a subplot of how they hate her for a while, and they realize the truth, and then it's never mentioned again. It's more like it's like they included it and did it well until they forgot about it and went to the ministry, and it just it feels like it's left kind of hanging. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, that is one change from the book that I'm not a huge fan of is the, the that Cho is the 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 reason that the DA gets caught, um, even if it is through Veritaserum. So it's not really her fault. But I also don't think that putting in a character like what what's her name Marietta Edgecombe. Yeah, that, that sounds right. That sounds right. Um, uh, she wasn't a character that needed to be here. I just hate that it then fell on Cho because she wasn't. Mm. But on the bright side, uh, Katie Leung has the cutest Scottish accent ever. <laughs> it is a very good accent. Um, I do like it. <laughs> yeah. And moving into kind of discussing Harry, um, I think, like, I've been saying this with every single movie, but Daniel Radcliffe is better than ever. Uh, he is so good. And uh, he's legit, I think, just great here. Um, and it's he's got a really rough role. Like, it, like there's a kind of thing in the fandom all caps Harry in a in a Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> I haven't actually read the books, so I don't. So I'm guessing like when he's yelling, it's all in caps or something. I've only listened to the Jim oh, Dale. Oh, that's versions. right. So have you done um, the audiobook by Jim Dale? Yeah, or something? the Jim Dale versions. Yeah. So I was going to mention caps lock Harry, and it's a lot nicer to listen to <laughs> than to read it in caps lock on the page. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, it's like there's like he is he is an absolute mess in this story. He's de- dealing with the you know, major PTSD from Cedric's death and Voldemort's return. Uh, and then like immediately after that happens, he's put into extreme isolation. He's living with people who hate him. None of his friends are talking to him. He knows like there's a war going on, but he's, he's completely left in the dark. He's like, there's, there's, we just like, we spend chapters in his head of this just roiling resentment and bitterness that explodes in moments of all caps yelling. Um, and here the, the, the first, I think the first 20 minutes might be the, my least favorite because like it's like three minutes in the dementors are attacking like nine minutes in we're flying with the order of the phoenix we're back in you know grimald place five minutes later we're on you know we're on the train um and so the moments where harry has his all caps outburst in the film despite being you know, extremely toned down from the book they still feel kind of random and almost even more nasty because we haven't spent like three chapters living in his head with all his resentment and impatience and frustrations. So now it just feels like, Oh, he's why is he yelling at Ron? Ron didn't say anything wrong. Um, like, so, yeah. and I think 
after they get to ha- after they get to Grimwald Place going forwards, that frustration and just the overall just paranoia and dealing with Voldemort and Snape's lessons, like all of that is played pretty well. But I bet they, they 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 I feel like they didn't lay the foundation properly in those first four minutes at Privet Drive. Um so it kind of undercuts it, it it going throughout the film, despite I think truly excellent work from Radcliffe. I agree. I don't think at the very beginning they establish well enough that he feels so isolated. They establish through the the dream sequences or through the just like brief flashes of visions of uh, the previous movie uh, that he is dealing with the PTSD of losing Cedric and Voldemort coming back and that, that experience in the graveyard. But we don't like he, he could have had just like a, a side conversation with Hedwig or something, or we see him writing a letter or something that that says, I just feel so alone. I haven't heard from my friends. And that way, when we do get to Grimald place and he is all of a sudden blowing up in Hermione and Ron's faces, it's like, okay, well, I, I saw that coming rather than like, Oh, okay. Something's going on with <laughs> Harry all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something, something even as simple as opening with him, writing a letter and sending it and then saying to Hedwig, like, not that I expect a reply, no letters also, or just, you know, just something or just like, like a that. couple minutes of just kind of sitting around miserable. Like mm-hmm. when you're, yeah. he's hiding under the window in, um, in the, in the book, um, just a little bit to kind of yeah. get that going rather than having to yeah, jumpstart it. Yeah. That's it. It is crazy that we, the, the idea of his isolation isn't a piece of information in the film until the, like, until he says, you know, you could have written. It's like, oh, I didn't even know they were not writing. I mean, they didn't, how could they write a letter in the four minutes we have? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so that kind of put me up, like, especially the first time watching. And I was like, wait, why is, and that, because like, it had been a bit, whenever I was, went through the movies for the first time, it had been a bit since I was on Order of the Phoenix. And so it took him, like kind of explaining like you know i haven't gotten any of these i'm like oh yeah that's right in because in the books he's just super depressed because he hasn't oh that okay yeah i got you another thought that just occurred to me in the scene when they're at the playground and dudley starts making fun of him and like oh is your mom dead what if before he made he he says something about his mom being dead he says something about not having friends because he hasn't like witnessed any communication back and forth i mean it would have been easy to just put in something that was going to build to that yeah. scene rather no, than we just see him friends. exploding at his only friends my, my mind's going yeah. back to chamber of secrets i haven't had any letters not one <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> um and I, I i think yeah going back to his performance like there's he's going through so much with the, the, the direct persecution from the ministry you know the all of the just the problems with voldemort beaming into his head and one really interesting thing I noticed, I thought about this time thematically is like the, what, what the Thestrals kind of represent. Um, like they're a, a visual kind of no pun intended reminder of the invisible trauma that Harry has been through. Like, or is like he can see them and because he's seen and felt things that no other one, no other person has. Um, and like it, it's, it's gone to a bit, a bit more in the book, but like I, I love like, like with the Dementors it's kind of like this, this, Think of you know, depression and Harry's past haunting him. Rolling again is able to create a magical creature that fits into the world, but is also kind of this representation of what Harry is going through internally. It's just really lovely world building. And I've read the series, you know, multiple times. It never even occurred to me. Like, obviously, you get, you've seen death, but like the fact that like he can see these are like he can see it because he he sees and feels things that are invisible to everyone else around him. Just 
really interesting to me. Because, you know, you have, you, you start the movie off with that, that confrontation on the, on the swing where he's talking about, you know, who's Cedric, you know, like, don't, don't kill Cedric. Like that's, that's how the movie presents itself from the beginning. And so whenever you establish that the only reason you can see the Thestrals is because he's seen death, it's like, it is a constant reminder of, of that, even that particular event, like whether in his dreams or now, even in his waking life, he's seeing something that reminds him of Cedric. Like he's reliving it in his nightmares. And then every time he sees a Thestral, a Thestral, he knows it's, it's because of that night. So it's even beyond just the, everything going on internally. Like there, there, like you said, there's so many things he's dealing with, but there's also such specificity to what that, what that is calling back to that. That's, that's just got to hurt in a very distinct way of like, I watched that kid die and I, I can't get rid of it in my sleep. And now I can't get rid of it at school. I'm just always going to be presently aware of it. Um, and building off his character, I, I love what they do with Sirius in this film. Like they have a lot of hard work. Like he's barely present in Goblet of Fire and, you know, we only had like three or four minutes with him. Uh, you know, cured or whatever in Prisoner of Azkaban. And so they have to kind of establish this really close, warm, um, maybe nephew-uncle, it's not quite a father-son relationship, kind of like a nephew-uncle relationship with they have together. Um, and they have to they have to like almost introduce it here. Like this, the final scene in Prisoner of Azkaban is fantastic, but we haven't seen him in a while. And so just Gary Oldman in his couple scenes with Harry he brings just so much just char- charisma and warmth mm-hmm. and kindness, but also it's, it's an interesting, complicated relationship where you have like Molly Weasley is just all protection. You're still a child. Like you just stop, you know, stop thinking about the larger world. And whereas he is like, he's very much enabling Harry and, and you're telling him what he wants to hear. And, and, and which isn't entire, which also is not very healthy for a teenager. Like, like, Teenagers also need structure and shouldn't be allowed to do whatever they want. But like, it, it feels really good because he like he enables Harry. He tells Harry what he wants to hear, so it feels wonderful in the moment. But it's also I think really complicated and real for a character who had I think you had a very strong case of Arrested Development like um, Sirius, who went into Azkaban in the books in his twenties, but he spent you know thirteen years of not growing as a person at all. So he also kind of feels like a big kid. Um, and just all that, all that stuff is happening and just, it's all, it's all just in like two or three scenes. Um, and Gary Oldman is so freaking good. He's so great. And this is our first real time to experience him, uh, aside from, Goblet, or from prison. <laughs> yeah. And well, we get one more bit of him later, but, uh, uh, in prisoner of Azkaban, he's like the wild crazed, almost unrecognizable as Gary Oldman, really, at least in my eyes. And then the only way we get serious in Goblet of Fire is through that awful <laughs> fireplace effect, which just for the record, I don't think the fireplace effect in this one is much improved, but <laughs> um, but it's our first time to really get serious filled out and his his hair looks nice and he's not grimy. He, he's he's a, a person now and not like a creature. And the 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 you use the word warmth and that's ex- exactly the word I was going to use as well. The warmth that he shows Harry and the fact that every time 
he and Harry communicate with each other. It ends with Harry grinning or smiling or having some sort of positive reaction. And then when we get to the ending uh, or towards the ending and Harry's like, well, we've got to go to London because Sirius is the only family I have left. And this is after uh, they were able to stay together at Grimmauld Place over or at the end of the summer and then over Christmas break. And uh, that, that scene, speaking of Christmas break, it is so, it's so great. It's really With great. The I love the, the, the tapestry when Harry is feeling so terrible because yes, he saved Arthur's life, but maybe he also ended it question mark because I was the snake and uh, the, the comfort that Sirius is able to pass into him by saying you are a good person. There is no good, evil, black, white. There is bits of both in all of us. And it's about how you act, which side you act on and you are a good person. And that's, that's such a good message for Harry, who is literally fighting against evil. But I think just for, for any person to hear from their uncle or their father or whoever they look up to, you are a good person. You are going through a rough time in your life right now, 15 years old, <laughs> whether you're being attacked by Voldemort or not, is a rough time in a lot of people's lives. And to from somebody that's going to be okay and that you're going to get past this, uh, Gary Oldman is serious, really communicates that so well. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite lines from the series. You know, the world isn't mm -hmm. split into good people and death eaters. And it's a really kind of lovely maturing of that idea from Chamber of Secrets, where Dumbledore's like, you know, it's our choices that define us, where you know, Harry's having similar questions and doubts. I, I just love the thematic consistency across the series. Like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I I had to say that whenever this starts and, you know, we see Sirius, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is whenever he really becomes a character. And they're like, wait a sec, with this order of the... I forgot. It's like I, I had to remember that he he's really introduced as a fully realized character and killed off in the same film, which is... You know, super sad. That but, happens quite a few times in this movie series. Yeah. People come showing up Tough just break. to die. But yeah, I, I, Gary Oldman is phenomenal here. There's, there's a moment in like the, those early scenes whenever he first goes to Grimald Place uh, that I just like, I, everything I need to know about you right now, about your relationship with hair, like everything is just, even just in this one moment, like whenever, um, Mrs. Weasley says, "Like, well, we might as just or we might as well swear him in as a member of the order." Uh, and Harry's like, "Good, glad. I want to. I want to fight." And then it cuts to to um, Sirius, and he's like, "See," and then like his his eye, like it's he like he has this smile that he's fighting super hard. He's almost he's twitching, but not in this like really over the top like ridiculous performance. It's just like he's. J it's, it's like whenever we get excited about something, we don't want to look stupid. So we're just like trying to like not be ridiculous. We're internalizing it. But like you can see just in the look in his eyes and his mannerism, like there is such a burst of pride in him, right? There. Like pride, not like self-pride, but like pride in his godson, right? There. Like he, he just looks after that moment like this is, this is my best friend's son. He's everything I want him to be. Like it's just... So much is communicated just through little interactions like that. I'm like, I I believe that y'all have been pen pals for forever. Like, I I believe, I, I had no issue filling in all of the history that, that this adaptation needs me to do because you just convinced me it all happened. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's such a great performance from Oldman. 
it is hard though, as readers of the books to not extrapolate information that we know from the books into the movie. And something I think that the movie doesn't do as good, and Gabe kind of hinted at this earlier, uh, is the the seeing Harry as James. And that's that being serious big flaw in this movie is that he wants to get out. He's been cooped up for so long. He was a prisoner for 13 years, and now he's cooped up in Grimmauld Place and can't go places. And all he wants to do is live a normal life and to have this this experience with his godson, but his godson he sees as James. And there's even that moment when uh, they're fighting in the Department of Mysteries at the end, he he calls Harry James just in the moment, in the in the heat of things. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just something he doesn't, book? he says without a thought. I, I think he does. I, I'm pretty sure that that happens in the book as well. But the thing you were hinting at is that the the scene with the, the occlumency, the occlumency lesson when Harry delves into Snape's mind and we see that flashback, the book does a really good job of having serious uh, sort of repeating this you're so much like your father you're so much like your father and then when harry finally gets into snape's mind and see sees what kind of an ass at least his father was at this point mm-hmm. in his life and how he treated uh snape it really makes harry question himself even further like do i want to be like my dad if he really was this kind of person and it's it's another conflict and the because we don't have that so established in this movie as much we have those couple scenes but that i I think that's why the the snape's memory scene doesn't work as well as it could have Mm -hmm. because because we don't have that connection to snape or sirius sees harry as james harry likes that but then he sees james treating snape badly and it's like oh no am i like my father the two people that i could be like right now are voldemort and my father and what an easy decision Mm -hmm. yeah and then as as the character of his father begins to be called into question. <laughs> it's kind of a, he, the, the lose-lose he feels in the book isn't necessarily there in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole story is kind of a deconstruction of Harry. Um, like in all the previous books, you know, he's you know he's the boy wizard, the kid detective. He's going to solve all the problems and and um, you know get it done. And the the you know some of the adults are good, but they're all kind of idiots. We don't really trust them. And like that entire the entire mindset completely backfires so badly by the end of this book um and it, like it, it's not really explored here but i do like that just overall as a, a world building thing like yes like kids running off into battle you know without consulting adults is generally not a good life philosophy um and i'm <laughs> glad it eventually does backfire in the series and it gets just a more mature thoughtful kind of approach to that Sirius does sort of uh, foreshadow that early in the film when he's dropping Harry off at King's Cross uh, to go to school. He he hands in the picture of the original Dumble, or uh, of the original Order of the Phoenix and says, "Well, you're the young ones now," and that's hinting heavily towards the the young pe- person's involvement in the upcoming war. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, another backfiring is Dumbledore's army is this awesome cool rebellion, and oh no, we got Dumbledore fired. <laughs> like. Yeah, it doesn't always pay off. Something that comes out of that moment with Dumbledore getting fired is Harry has this line. He says, the more you care, the more you have to lose. Maybe it's better to go it alone. And I I just love that 
that comes full circle by the end of the film after the confrontation at the Department of Mysteries and against Voldemort when he possesses him. And he looks out at his friends as he's struggling on the ground with Dumbledore looking unable to help. And he he looks at his friends and he, he relives his happy memories and he realizes that that thing he said earlier about the, the more you have, the more you have to lose. His friends and his family are the ones who taught him love and that's what sets him apart from Voldemort. So I love that full circle moment between his mindset in one of the darkest moments of the film after Dumbledore is gone to him realizing that that is his biggest asset Mm -hmm. and that they have something worth fighting for, as he says at the end. It's the, the series kind of does this a lot with each book and film where the, the stories find their own organic ways to kind of have Harry feel isolated from the school and his classmates. Uh, and it starts off here, you know, Seamus saying, you know, I my mom almost didn't let me come back. And the everybody's kind of buying into this lie that, that Harry's lying. Um, what's interesting is, you know, he, he ends up being able to win them back over and they form DA. Uh, and then, like you said, forming Dumbledore's army is what got Dumbledore fired. And so Harry's like, well, maybe this isn't a good thing. And they're like, no, like, we're still going to be with you. You're still friends. You still got to care. Like, I mean, like what you said with that, with that quote, you know, like whenever I begin to care more, like there's just so much more at stake. This isn't worth it. And they say, no, it is worth it. Caring for people is where your strength is. And then even after that, where you think that's the that's the transition going into like proving that thing unequivocally true, it's his care and his concern for Sirius that ends up getting Sirius killed. And so it's, it's such a a one-two punch for Harry, you know, like it's this crea- it's this unification of the student body. We are going to do this together. We can't do this alone. And now we just gave Dolores a position of power. And it's, we have got to come together and help the order. We've got to help Sirius, you know, that that didn't dissuade me. We've got to go do this. And now Sirius is dead. And it's really, it's it's really hard on Harry. Like the movie, this, this story is almost mean to Harry. But I like that, it, like, I love the resolve that both Harry and the story's own themes show. Like even when the 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 story itself is attacking its own message of like, Hey, every time he does this, he's making it worse, but that that's still not enough. Like that's not enough to make me not believe what I believe. So at the end, whenever they're walking together, they're like, no, we, as hard as it is. And as much, as many problems as this has caused us, I've come face to face with Voldemort. And that is not who, like, I know what d- makes us distinct. And it is this friendship. And for as all the heartache that it's going to cause, it is worth it. So for the movie to actively make its own themes harder to, to be triumphant by the end, it still does it in a way that I find really interesting. Another good example of that is, is like his DA friends. Like, yes, he is the one who led them into a trap in the ministry, but also he's the person who taught them everything they needed to know to survive in that trap that he led them into. Like it's, it's always a double-edged sword. Um, it is never one way or the other. Um, yeah. so speaking of Dumbledore, what are our feelings on Michael Gambon in this one? Uh, James first. I love him in this one. Uh, 
I I mean, I'm already just a massive fan of his voice. Like, his voice is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we get so much more of a sense of his power here. Um, for, like, I know we're probably going to talk at length about the duel. Like, that is such an incredible scene. Um, but, like, his defense... I, I imagine what his defense would look like had Newell directed where he comes in and is like, oh, you're trying to kick me out. Like, just all the things that they could have done during that scene. And, uh, but here, like, I love, I love his demeanor, his charge. And like there, there is still that, that bit of fun Dumbledore, like the, the kind of quirky things about him. Like after he makes his case, he just kind of does that shrug. <laughs> it's a great gif. Uh, you, you still get like the, Dumbledore's not kooky, but like there's 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 a bit of that kind of little wildness to him that you get, and so whenever you see all of these, like whenever you see this mixture of like the fun side of him with the power and the reassurance, and then he just ignores you completely, it hurts. And so like I don't know, I think the movie really benefits from his performance being much more consistent and in line with the character itself. In this one, because whenever he's just walking away entirely, it it hurts more. Because like, oh yeah, you're reminding me that I do like Dumbledore. Or you know, whenever he comes and he has that moment where he has um, you know, he tells McGonagall to take. Why well, I'm going blank on Trelawney? the professor's name. Yeah, Trelawney. Whenever he has her to ask her to escort her back into Hogwarts and stands up to Dolores, you're like, yes, I love Dumbledore. He's great. So I I really like his performance a lot. I really like his performance as well, but I, I was struggling when I was watching last night. There was something that I, that, that was, I don't know if it rubbed me the wrong way is the right way to phrase it. I, I had trouble sort of writing down explicitly what bothered me in my notes, but it actually is in that scene with uh, Trelawney and, Delor- and, and Umbridge in the courtyard. that I noticed it and I think it's uncertainty. Like Dumbledore, from my memory in the books was never really an uncertain person, but when he confronts Umbridge in the courtyard and tells McGonagall to take Trelawney back inside. And he says, yeah, you don't have the, the, the authority to dismiss people from my grounds. But then uh, Umbridge says for now. And to me, it seemed like Dumbledore should have had some sort of final say in that moment, but instead he just had this look of like, he didn't know what to do in that moment. And instead of confronting it or having something to say in front of all these students who are watching, he just turns and walks away and ignores Harry behind him. And yells at like the he students. doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Don't you it, have it, studying it, to do? Yeah. It was just a little, a little weird to me. And it's nothing to do with Gambin's portrayal. It was, it was, just maybe the way he was written or maybe it was the direction in that particular scene but do you guys do you know what i'm saying like does it make sense yeah i i did i missed that moment but him kind of yelling at the students was it was so far out of character it's like that's the most like goblet of fire like he got in this movie yeah. <laughs> but outside of that scene i i love him like i've kind of resigned myself to like he will never have the the grandfatherly warmth that Richard Harris right. had and is so vital to the book, but he has the power and intelligence. When he walks into that her- hearing room, the day is saved. And just even like his enemies, they can't like, he just, he just walks over them and they have to listen. Um, 
and just that authority he carries like that moment where he does, you know, he, 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 he's the one who can finally stand up to umbrage. Um, not if, if imperfectly, it's like that there's just so much intelligence in the way he plays him. And particularly in this one, in the, um, I, lo- I love that the way he plays it in the hearing where he has all the, ju- the Dumbledore kookiness and charm, but it feels like it's just thinly veiled over just absolute disgust for what fudge is and what is happening. And like, it's, it's like you, you like, is it, 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 does he hate me? Was like, like you, you don't entirely see it, but just, there are just little moments in between the little goofy, goofy isms where it's like, yeah, he's so completely done with how incompetent the ministry is and how, how corrupt it is, how badly it's treating Harry. Um, and just the way he plays that, and then his final scene was like, you seem to be laboring under the delusion that I, they intend to come. What's the <laughs> phrase? Quietly. <laughs> just Again, like he just owns every scene. And we'll talk about that duel, but like just, that is something that, that Richard Harris, I don't think ever could have done. I love how warm and grandfatherly he is, but I don't think he would, he, you wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to own every single situation he is in so completely the way Gambon is and, and portray just that, really keen intelligence and constant calculation and and like you feel like this guy he is also running a civil war behind the scenes i, I agree with all of that i i have a hard time imagining richard harris in the cave in half-blood prince um but gambin wields that power there so well um and i'm mm-hmm. jumping the gun a little bit but <laughs> i i do love the the power of gambin as dumbledore versus the the grandfatherliness, although I would argue that, uh, again, hinting forward, Gambin does have that grandfatherly Dumbledore down in like the King's Cross scene in mm-hmm. the last film. But uh, here, I, I do really like him. Before we move on, one thing that I do want to say is, so I, I definitely see the things you're saying with this, there's an uncertainty to him. But that's, mm-hmm. I brought that up as a complaint in Goblet of Fire because it felt like an uncertainty that was so off-brand. Like the scene where he just like he just sits himself down and like scratches his temple with his wand, is like oh, but like the, just the tone of his voice, the way it just and like this is why would I put my faith in this guy? But I, I feel like there's a level of necessity to the uncertainty in terms of of the plot. Like we have to perceive like he's not sure if he can actually swing it this time so that the Dumbledore's army must feel like a necessity. It's like Dumbledore doesn't even seem like he's, we don't even know if he's going to be able to keep things under control. Like we've got to do something like, cause it looks like all the, all of our heroes have their back against the wall. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I do kind of like, in in Goblet of Fire, whenever his uncertainty happens, I get the feeling of why am I even trusting this guy in the first place? Whenever I get the uncertainty here, I'm like, oh no, things are really bad. Like the guy who should always be in control seems kind of worried. And now I'm scared. And I, I feel like I'm feeling what the plot wants me to feel. And then, you know, going to that to the initial ministry trial, like whenever he goes up to Fudge, I love the desperation. His voice like, please, Fudge, listen to reason. Like, I th- he really, he has plans in place, but as smart and intelligent and forward-thinking and tactical as Dumbledore is, there are things that are 
to some extent out of his control. There are decisions that other people have to make for everything he's banking on to happen to happen. And so whenever Fudge is being as incompetent as he is, whenever he has the power of headmaster slowly being pulled out from him, I like that we start to get this. I am, I'm like flying by the seat of, I'm trying to hold this thing together. And he's, he's, to me, it's that perfect balance of he's, 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 you know, taking this all in stride, handling it as best as he can. There is no, there's not anything he's doing wrong. It's just every card is stacked against him. And it, you know, as we were sitting here talking about it, I was starting to justify it in my head. And the other word I came up with was weariness. Like he's just tired of everything that's happening and that's pile on top, piling on top of him. And almost a guilt that's settling in with him based on how he's treating Harry. And we see that as he's leaving the courtyard and we hear Harry yelling at him in the background. And I think that what it does in the movie is it lets us get a glimpse into what's going on maybe in Dumbledore's head. Whereas in the books, we would always get the stoic face of Dumbledore. Like he, he knows exactly what's happening in every facet of his school building. He knows what everybody's doing. He knows what they're all up to. He has answers for everything, but maybe internally he, he is casting a little bit more of that slight self-doubt or that, that uncertainty or that weariness, whatever you want to call it, but because it's a movie and it's not a book, it does make sense to let us, the audience glimpse a little bit of that and, uh, and the characters, that, you know. See see how serious all of this is. And building off of that, Order of the Phoenix is the book where we first see, we start to see cracks in Dumbledore. Like, before that, he he is God at Hogwarts. He knows all. He is all powerful. And this is where we see his first big mistake with the gamble he made with separating himself from Harry at the beginning of the year and how badly it backfires. And he's like, we have that long scene in the book where he's, He's apologizing, like, I made a mistake and it cost us. Um, we and get a little I, bit I of that, that here. Um, not not as well, but like, uh, there, there's precedent in the story that this this is where the just the, 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 the mystique of Dumbledore begins to get a little, get some cracks in it. And that's, some, that's something that's continued, particularly in Deathly Hallows. Um, but like, we're, we're, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a child, your parents know everything. And then, then when you're a teenager, they know nothing. And then eventually you kind of get a more mature adult understanding that they're just people. Uh, and we're kind of, we're kind of getting, we're starting to see the fact that Dumbledore's a man. Like he doesn't know everything. Um, and it's really uncomfortable. And I think the admittance of fault really does justify some of the, the, the cracks that the movie lets us see, you know, whenever, whenever he doesn't, have a response to Dolores and he walks back. And then even on top of that, then he hears Harry's voice calling out to him and he doubles down on this plan to distance himself. It's like, I don't, I, I guess I, I buy that it doesn't take until the end of the story for a Dumbledore to be like, Oh wait, that was a mistake. Like, I think he's internally struggling with, is this the right idea? Is this, Harry needs me. And I'm, and like, you see that him questioning himself more and more, especially like, I think is just his vis visible performance. There is really, is really strong of him walking away. Where it's like, man, you see that that hurts. Mm -hmm. I agree with all of that. Yes. Yeah, so moving on with the characters. I have a question for you guys. 
why is Umbridge the most evil villain of all time? (laughs) (laughs) She is so well cast. And even though I wouldn't have described Imelda Staunton as toad-like as she's described in the books, uh, we do get a Ron quote Mm -hmm. uh, calling her toad face in this movie, though, that I hadn't realized before. But she so well plays the sickly sugary sweetness of this character with the rage and the evil underneath and that chuckle (laughs) is stuff of nightmares and she's fantastic she's such a good villain she's played perfectly there's a few new characters in this movie and all of them are cast beautifully which is just something that the harry potter series always did well anyways yeah yeah i she was a character that was memed a lot, you know, and so I was aware of her presence even before reading the book. And then I read the book. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I loathe this woman with every fiber <laughs> of my being. And then I thought, how are the, how do they capture how they capture this in in the movie? How what poor woman is going to have to try to embody <laughs> this nightmare of a person? And I think she does really fantastic uh a, a really fantastic job with it that it's almost like a joker from burton batman like smile burned in on her face it's never gone like when she's upset it's 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 just until that very last scene i don't know if we ever really see her when she's not just got that horrible fake powdery smile on i'm like oh I, I loathe you and all the things she does with her voice where like in, in the initial scene, I think it's her first line uh, when Dumbledore is questioning, you know, the why Dementors would be there. She's like, I, it's so silly of me, but it almost, I'm like, oh, every, every inflection you choose to have, everything is just, it's dialed up in a way that you're very good at your job. I'm trying not to hate you as a person because I know you're an actress, but you are so awful. And and writing-wise, she's so well adapted from the book, the way she escalates throughout the course of the film. You have that initial scene in the hearing where she she is voting to convict Harry. She's one of the few, along with Fudge. And then we get to Hogwarts, and she talks about um, how progress for the sake of progress must be discouraged. And then we get to the classroom and she says a theoretical knowledge will be sufficient to get you through your examinations, which after all is what school is all about is examinations. And as a teacher in my day job, that hurts a lot because <laughs> oh, every, it's awful. every, all of us who've been through like the tax test or stars test is like, right. Oh. Right. And then we get to the scene with McGonagall in the great hall, the, the very first like public confrontation uh, where Umbridge is being questioned and she uses the word disloyalty about the minister of magic who's appointed um, as as a servant of the people, not as some high ruler. So that's such BS. And then we get the, the high inquisitor. See, I'm, I'm stealing all this from you guys. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Go on. And then the firing of Trelawney, which is obviously terrible for a lot of reasons, because as she sit, as Trelawney sits there crying, like, how can you do this to me? I've lived here for however many years. And you can't do this to me. And Umbridge says, actually, I just did. And that's all she has to say about it. And then ultimately culminating in the scene in the forest where she comes across the centaurs and she says, near human intelligence. And she calls them half breeds. And 
there she's so willing to torture children with illegal curses she escalates further and further and further throughout the film and it is so uh, again beautifully acted by Imelda Staunton she's perfect in the role but just I'm I'm in awe of how well the character is adapted from the book so you hate her just as much on the screen as you do on the page I don't know about that I I I do think like the book is so long and that escalation it never stopped like the movie (laughs) you got you got two hours (laughs) the book you've got 500 pages (laughs) and every 20 pages she does something even more evil (laughs) and like she's like she's like truly sadistic and just Mm -hmm. she's the devil pretty much in the book and uh she put three spoonfuls of sugar in her tea she must be stopped (laughs) yeah but but it is a really good interpretation um and like she's the embodiment of this the this uh, like a rotten bureaucratic government that has long since lost any sight of duty to his people it's just we exist to perpetuate ourselves and it's just it's all entirely self-serving and like, and all she just wants is for the world to obey her. Why can't everyone do what mm-hmm. I want them to do? And like the only time she gets upset is when her authority is challenged. Um, like when Dumbledore, like, oh, someone who has more power in this one area of life than me, it like <laughs> deeply infuriates her. Um, and like, and with her, like, it's not even about loyalty to the ministry. The minute the ministry is only is only the 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 structure that gives her the ability to rule her will over others. Like, and we, as we saw when Voldemort took over, she's like, okay, this is the new regime. I'm just, and now I can, you know, I can, you know, go even farther in forcing my will on others. It's all about like, like if someone, if someone had, like if Voldemort had killed Fudge in front of her, I don't think she would even blink an eye. She would just start working for Voldemort right then and there. Cause, because this person gives me the ability to be a tyrant, to, to, crush the will of others it's just it's 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 so evil yeah i i love what that moment means for her whenever she talks about doing the the unforgivable or one of the unforgivable sorry i can't speak the unforgivable curse i don't know if it's easier to say the the cruciatus curse or that um (laughs) but whenever she's going to do it she's like what the minister doesn't know won't hurt him and like puts the the photo down it's like yeah, you weren't, you, you, you made it seem like it, this was all about, no, it's, it is about order. It is about rightness. Everything here, we are loyal to the minister. We are loyal to all of this. But then with the, her final moments in the film, it's exactly what you're saying, which is she wants to be able to do what she wants to do. And she's never had any need to to really buck up against the system. She's always been able to operate, you know, and so she's able to pass it off as loyalty to the ministry. But the second that she has to, it's like, oh, okay, and the facade drops. The the picture goes down. And then, you know, when we're out to the the most middle of nowhere we get to with the series, which is deep into the forbidden <laughs> forest, no no one's around, all of a sudden we get it all. I don't like kids. These are filthy half, like these are just every vile thing about her. It just comes out to the open. Now I'm curious, it, her house, like when she was a Hogwarts student has been confirmed. If you had to take a guess what her Hogwarts house would have been or was, do you guys know or have a guess? I mean, the evil house. <laughs> what about you, James? Do you- would it be Gryffindor? 
Uh, she was Slytherin. Uh, oh. Yeah, she she was a Slytherin, uh, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, we have Peter Pettigrew, who was sorted into Gryffindor and then turned out the way he did. And then you have, uh, I think, Lockhart was a Hufflepuff. <laughs> and we saw how Lockhart ended up. And so I, I think it's just it, it's almost telling in a way that Umbridge was just, she wasn't like Ravenclaw gone bad. She was just straight up Slytherin from the beginning. <laughs> and to the surprise of no one. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you see, the house that represents pure evil. Let's put her there. <laughs> um, going back to actually uh, something I wanted to talk about earlier, some, some of the um, design elements of this world that Yates brought. Uh, how do y'all feel about kind of the visual aesthetic and just the the production design look? Because like, each director has brought a very distinctive look and style for the world. Um, how are y'all feeling about the the, the the look that Yates brought? Uh, um, I... I I don't have any issues with it. I, I think it stands out. I mean, it is hard to, it, at least in the moment, I haven't had a rewatch of the whole series in a long time, but things like things that are new, like Grimald Place, I thought that effect was really well done. I like the design of how the, the 11 and 13 mm -hmm. just sort of scoot to the side and 12 appears in the middle. And I like the the appearance of the room of requirement and how how that works and even like the door moves based on where Filch has stationed himself. And I mean, th those kind of familiar but new location elements I really enjoy. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I have a whole lot to say about that in particular, unless I hear something that I could bounce off <laughs> what you guys say. So I feel like usually I'm not really one for like very muddy colors and browns and stuff, but for some reason when it comes to Hogwarts here, I really like it. Like there's something, uh, we talked about the first two one with Columbus. We said the Hogwarts feels very like real life historical. Like these are castles that are just out there. Um, this almost feels like, fantasy historical like these feel ancient as in like uh, you know the ages and wars and so and so that this place has seen like there is something that feels i don't know very like like this has been here for millennia mm -hmm. um that i like the the big stylistic thing uh that i really i take away more than anything here is the ministry yes. itself I love the look of it so like just the reflective black with the the green accents around and then like the the gold trim on everything mm -hmm. all of those colors like that's one of the most visually compelled like just interesting things ever um I kind of got uh the the same kind of magical feel that I did with like the the prologue of Unexpected Journey with Erebor, where it's like, we're just, these are these great halls with such cool color choices going on. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I love, I love the looks of it. I love the big statues. I love all of the, the windows going up and the big uh, tapestry with, with fudge on it. Like I just, it's such a cool design. Uh, from top to bottom to me. Yeah, the thing that we'll say, I've, sorry, I'll, just real quick, I'll <laughs> say that I've been to the studio tour in London mm. a couple of times and it's just as cool in person, right. <laughs> the ministry. Yeah, I'd imagine so. That, that, that's on the bucket list. Um, yeah. The thing that stood out to me that Yates brought in this particular viewing is that 
for all the previous films, they feel very grounded in human architecture where like where uh, Columbus is a very classical look. Um, uh, Koran brought kind of this like creaky Dickensian, like kind of like 1800s, just kind of slapped together a lot, a whole lot of wood, it, but it, it still felt like it came out of a period of human history. Yates bring like, well, obviously there's a lot of real world architectural influence. It feels different. Like the ministry. I cannot think of any architecture in human history with the, the, the black marble, the, the, the golden decorations that he was talking about. Like, nothing that I can think of in, in, out of human architecture looks quite like the ministry. It's, it's almost like a little alien. It's, it's a, like we are truly stepping into a magical world where people just live and think differently than we do. Um, that, that's, that seems to be a consistent thread. And he's, he's, gone on with with like fantastic beasts in the later films and even in hogwarts just like the way the stone is carved and the decorations on the walls and the doors and just the way the room of acquirement looks just it looks like what we have but with this weird alien twist to it um that i think it just really fits the tone he's set for this world um and speaking of tone i think that's both i think one of his strongest suits and late and then the more films he makes kind of one of his weaknesses is i feel like this might be the most tonally consistent harry potter film um you know columbus it was you know kind of goofy children's film and it, it would kind of go with, sometimes just like okay that that gag is a bit too much uh quran he was pretty consistent but then there were occasional moments where like i i this feels so out of left field um and newell did what newell did um but like i, I watching this film I never really felt moments where like, oh, that joke was so goofy and took me out of this the scene, or oh, that that one piece of action was so unrealistic, and and it's and it's not like like Yates has the ability to be very goofy. Like, there's a very bouncy, fun, and genuinely silly sense of humor to his films. Like, he's always going for a sight gag or a little bit of slapstick, but and, and but it's so weird because his films are generally very rather gloomy and dour. But he's also has a really goofy sense of humor in there, and neither one feels out of place. It, it's it's like this weird contradiction. Like he makes really glower, dour films, but they're also really funny. Um, and it's interesting. I, I think it really works for this one because <laughs> this is a really dark book where you know Hogwarts it was you know it's our home, it's a refuge, it's safe. It becomes it gets in, it's invaded and it's taken away from us. Um, so I think that, that that dour tone he brings really fits. But I also really respect how he can he can still be very playful. I agree with that. I, I like that. Uh, goodness. I don't know if I was going anywhere with that, but I agree. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we, we've talked about the, the characters and how he handles uh, secondary and even tertiary characters with this. And I think that's in a way that partially helps because, because he, it feels like, the students themselves are realized more in this than they have been before where, because this is a person will have this gag go on back there and they're not just an extra. It's, Oh, that's, that is so-and-so and and I can make them do this thing. And, um, and even with somebody like Filch, (laughs) I, whose (laughs) ridiculousness in Goblet of Fire didn't always work for me. Uh, here I, you know, we we get a little bit of the silly run 
I I think him just camping out with the sandwich is really funny. Uh, Dashing into the great like, hall with a mop <laughs> as the fireworks yeah. go off. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it, it's I don't know. I, and it, it, he gets to f- have fun with the with the different montages and stuff. So uh, many I really, montages. And I really like the montages. Uh, like Cho. You know, looking at Harry and forgetting to levitate Nigel and having him fold out. Like, there's these little fun bits of like it's it's little fun funny moments that make sense for Cho though. So it's kind of it's grounded in the character. Have cutting back to Nigel, who's this like <laughs> this young boisterous kid who's excited to be there, like, having him pop back up and kind of give the thumbs up. Like, it's just it's these fun moments that he's able to find room for. Yeah, it's funny like. I know Nigel's personality. He might only have like two lines, but like he's always doing something. Like even the scene when like Umbridge breaks through the wall, like, he's going and peeking in, and Harry has to yank him back. Like there's so much personality happening in these moments. I, I wonder if he's supposed to be Colin Creevy, but they couldn't get the actor back. You know, That's... and so they instead of recasting, yeah. it was like here's Colin Creevy 2.0, or call him <laughs> Dennis. Like he could be Dennis Creevy. <laughs> yeah, um, I had the same thought. I'm like, is I, I had to look it up. I'm like, wait, is Nigel? It was it Nigel Creevy? <laughs> it feels like this is the role he's fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the the, the awesome ministry sequence, I, I do want to talk a bit about just the Dumbledore's army stuff. Um, and, and going back to Harry's character, I think they really get him right here, where it's like he doesn't want to be a leader. He hates being in the spotlight, but he's a damn good leader, and he knows like it's he's he's. He kind of uses Lupin's teaching style from Prisoner of Azkaban, where it's like he gives you yes, the information I the same thing. and then he steps back and allows you to do it um, for yourself. Mm-hmm. And like he's genuinely charismatic and inspiring while also not feeling like some kind of you know sh- show off idiot. He is so fantastic. I think that's possibly my favorite part of this movie is that whole Dumbledore's army sequence where first we get the the introduction of the idea of it in the hogshead and he's so uncertain and he's like, nobody wants to listen to me. Everybody just thinks I'm a freak. Let's go home. Hermione convinces him to stay. And he says, you know, I, I was lucky guys. This, this isn't school. This is real life. You go out there and you're an inch away from being killed and you you, you've just got to have some sort of reaction. You've got to have some sort of basis to prepare yourself. And that ends up being the thing that gets people to buy into him as a teacher. And that then leads into him buying into himself as a teacher and to see him going around and to, to care for each, each friend as his own student to encourage Neville the way mm-hmm. he does and the way everybody rallies behind Neville as he, he's able to accomplish things and become more of a real character in this one versus when I say real character, I don't mean Neville wasn't a character before. I mean, like he, he's starting to become a legitimate, like full, more fully fledged wizard and not just the, the goofy kid gag on the side. Um, but just seeing the way Harry interacts with those and the way he, he does find confidence in himself and, realizes that he does have something to offer as a teacher and uh, it, it really is great and I, I do like that you pointed out that it's very lupin in his teaching style because that that was his best teacher so far as far as like defense against the dark arts at least not and, a high bar but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and he for him to emulate that and to to find the things to say and the things to do and it's just really great. I really love Harry's growth in that sequence. Yeah, I 
I mean, we've already talked about Radcliffe being great in this, but I, I mean, it's so relevant here, uh, just in the discussion about his character. Like, whenever, whenever they are at the Hogshead, he's he can't. He's not even really meeting their eyes at first. That was a little touch that I just thought like went a long way. You know, you have you've got these ideas of like the the best leaders are the people who who aren't seeking to be leaders, and you you can visibly see that in his performance where. They're talking about him and he's just kind of got his eyes on the floor. And then somebody's like, you know, did you really see, you know, who? And like, he kind of, he looks at him a little bit and he, he does like the quick nod and it's, it's like, yeah, yes, this is, this is real. Like it's, it feels so grounded in a real kind of human response. I don't know. There's just something that feels so realistic to the way he acts. And then, yeah, whenever, so whenever he, he's like going around the room and like, talking to everybody individually on this rewatch, I was like, yeah, I am kind of getting loop involved. Like that kind of, whenever Neville's like, you know, I, I, he's complaining about not being able to get it done. It's like, yeah, I, I know, but keep trying. You know, he wasn't like, oh, Neville, you're doing it wrong. It's like, just keep at it. And then whenever Ginny produces the Patronus, it's like, great job. Like he's, he seems excited for her. And like, he's just, he, the smile on his face as he's going around from person to person, watching them grow. It's like, it's, because he's not a teacher like and this isn't his or like a you know a hired teacher and this isn't his salary you know what like all of this excitement it's because he genuinely cares there's there's literally no other motivation for him outside of like i want this for y'all i want y'all to be able to defend yourselves i want us to be prepared and so that genuine excitement and camaraderie from him it's just it's not hokey it's not put on like it's just Harry to me is that is like his most likable in this in, in this one in the series so far. Yeah. All right, the climax. <laughs> like it, I could have hated everything that happened before this, but I would still probably love the movie just because of how awesome this everything is. Um just one first off, that Hall of Prophecies another just incredible design. Um just the, the endless glowing glass orbs, the shelves like <laughs> go up so freaking high. And then there's the way they, they'll collapse and explode. Um, just fantastic. And the way he shoots it with the, the Loomis light kind of giving this little circle and the, the, um, the way, the way the death eaters kind of just emerge out of the darkness with their, you just see the glowing mass. I, like, so I, like, I like their mass so much more in this one than in Goblet of Fire. Um, I do. I like the full masks way more than the half masks. I will say that. Mm. And like, I, Jason Isaacs, I like he could have been the main villain for the end of this film. Like he is so overqualified as a performer, like, just to be a henchman. Um, yeah. Just the way he's. Don't you want to know? I've waited fourteen years. I know. <laughs> that fake empathy going on. He's so much fun. Just. And I, I, just the way he's interacting, he's talking with Harry and they constantly having to keep a hand on Bellatrix to keep her in line. Like, it, I love that so there's good. like almost the subtle good cop, bad cop thing that just immediately happens with him and Bellatrix where she's, you know, Harry, I forget the specific question, but he asks something and she like she lashes out. He's like, no, no, the boy's just curious. And he's, <laughs> he's almost like trying because he's he is playing good cop. And I was like, just give it over. Like. He's done nothing wrong, Bellatrix. Let's just everybody calm down. And like he wants everybody to put their wands down. Like, oh, he's man, I love him in the role so much. 
it's a great whisper and the way he enunciates is really satisfying. He, yes. he, he is really great. I, I, I like Jason Isaacs a lot um, as Malfoy and uh, seeing how that performance evolves in the next couple movies is really great too. Um, the, the one thing about the climax before we get to like the, the really good things about it, there's a couple of hallmarks of Yates <laughs> that are introduced in these these climax scenes that I'm just not a huge fan of. I don't know if it's Yates's fault or if it's the screenwriter's fault. But first off, it's the um, the flying around of the Death Eaters. In fairness, that was a Newell thing, like the uh, the wispy was apparition where they come into the graveyard. I do also well, have a problem with that. <laughs> that was there, there was that, but in Goblet of Fire, they don't fly around the way oh, they do yeah, yeah. in this one. Where it's like they? half like, a body coming out of the mist. Yeah, I mean, I, I granted, it is very cool when the order shows up and you have the light and the dark streams flying mm -hmm. around. Like, that's a very cool visual thing, but it has no basis from the books whatsoever. And I hate to be that guy. I was like, well, that's not even in the books. But uh, it, it it's weird. And that leads to, like, one of my biggest gripes about Deathly Hallows Part 2. Mm -hmm. And it, it starts here. It starts here. <laughs> and so the other thing that starts here is the uh, Priorian Cantatum nonstop. Wands connecting for no reason. But I have nonsense. a counter argument. It is uh -huh. really, really cool. Well, the, the rest of that <laughs> battle, yes. The the I, I don't love the ones connecting because then they just don't stop doing it for the rest of the series. <laughs> I've heard that complaint. It's never really been one that I've had. Just as as I said, it's cool. It's really cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I do. I think that the um, apparition as wispy flying gets increasingly irritating as the series goes on. It's probably <laughs> at its best usage here, and it's just yeah, it's, it's it such a cool visual. Um, yes. And the arrival of the order of the Phoenix, like you saw this in the theater. I was, I was, I was watching, I was like, I so desperately wish I could have seen this opening night in a crowded theater as we get for the first time, a true wizard battle going on. Mm -hmm. I thought, what, what was that like, man? <laughs> I, I wish I could remember the specifics of it. I mean, I'm sure there was cheering because there always were at the Harry Potter premieres when when we'd go. And it that that certainly would have been a moment where as soon as Sirius shows around or turns up and says, uh, get your hands off my godson and lays a, a right mm, hook on, so on Lucius Malfoy's face. Like, yeah, it's it's pretty great. And every you know everybody stood up and cheered. And it it it's 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 a really great scene. I really like that. I imagine just like being at a, like an Avengers level moment in theaters. Um, and just the, the, I guess the language of combat that Yates and his choreographers created, it, it, it's so cool and it feels so intuitive. Um, like just the motion they use to block incoming spells, uh, that effect, yes, that. like it, it just, it, it feels, it, it makes sense, but it's so flowing. It's the way you shoot the camera is just like swirling around. You have these shots of, of, uh, of Sirius and Harry, you're dueling with uh with Lucius and the other Death Eater. It's just, it is so cool and dynamic, and we've seen nothing like the dueling. In uh, like, thinking about what, what dueling was back in Chamber of Secrets to what I it was is just now, thinking that. <laughs> it's yeah. it's incredible. It's and it's just so beautifully realized and exhilarating. Yeah, to go from the dueling club, Malfoy shooting a or yeah, Malfoy shooting a snake at Harry. Um, in Chamber of Secrets to uh, Harry and Sirius fighting side by side against Lucius and the, I don't remember the other Death Eater. Um, but that that's such a great moment. One, because you you have Sirius and Harry like being happy and enjoying the moment for what it is. 
uh, it, and then the heartbreak to follow, of course. But it, it's it's a great scene seeing what real dueling looks like, and to see that Harry does a little bit know what he's doing. He 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 doesn't give himself the full credit, but he he's he's holding his own in this fight. I, I like that every now and then, Sirius kind of has to jump over and block a block a spell for him. Yeah, like they're kind of tag teaming there. Uh, just the you, you've done beautifully like i can't even make mm-hmm. you feel bad despite you being very stupid and what you just did i still gotta you know pat you on the back because you're so much like james yeah before we move on just to to talk about the the two specific things brought up um with the the wispy clouds i feel like i'm kind of where y'all are in that in a vacuum in isolation it is a cool visual and it makes for such an entrance it's so cool and i love the light and dark visually it all plays so well but it does kind of it it bucks up against certain things about like wizarding duels and spell even just magic that i that i'm not as big a fan of something that i love about the way it's been portrayed before is that like in in Azkaban, your wand is your it's like your conduit into something deeper. Like we're we're using it. We are finite. We are physical, and with this, we're kind of we're tapping into some sort of ancient magic that's just around us, and we're giving these bursts into it. Um, and there there's something cool about that. There's something very analog to me about that. About like. And we still get that here, like with the wish, you know, we're, we're flicking the wands to block and we're doing like there is a very hands on approach. And so whenever it's like, and now I'm a wispy cloud. Now it feels like we're there's a there's a disconnect whenever we are involved in all of like this craziness. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not as big a fan. It's even like something that I, I love the way um, operating is described in the books where it's like. It's not a, and then you slowly, it's not a Star Trek beam where you're slowly beamed in. It's like a pop. You're just there. Like you and your total, you're just entirely there. Yeah, and it's so, like what we see from the twins at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so like there's this, there's this very, there's this emphasis on our physicality involved, like, and how it interacts with magic itself. And so whenever our own physicality becomes part of the magic, maybe that's just a weird personal thing to me, but I don't like seeing us and our bodies involved like that. I like this idea that that magic happens to us. We use magic through this wand as a conduit. And so, I don't know. There, there's just some level of visual disconnect that that kind of wispiness creates. Yeah. And that brings me up to something I want to talk about is, is Yates' portrayal of magic. It's it's much more in line with what Coron did, but I think it, like Coron's was like very... It's like a it's like whew, this whisper sound, like it was that little whoosh of power leaking out. Yates is is, is like it's much sharper, it's like snaps and pops and like really sharp explosions. There is a, there's a, there's a bit of that kind of that that re, that you know release of magic it through you know through the sonic landscape, but it, it, he he definitely brings his own um just. It, 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 oh, just kind of approach to like what do these spells look like, and I I, I like it you know so much better than what what uh, Columbus and Newell were doing, which just loud loud whooshing noises and bright swirly lights and stuff. This stuff this this feels very very dangerous. Like when a spell explodes next to your head, you almost died. Yeah, something that I like about certain decisions he makes is that it feels like whenever there are changes, 
it's not well i think this looks cooler it's like well i kind of need I, I think it should be this for the story and and what comes to mind there is the idea of the patronus where like in azkaban it's like an umbrella i, I yeah like this this swishing thing for the we've tried to describe it a lot of like this idea of like we're just kind of making this little crack in reality for magic to burst through what it reminds me is like uh what it reminds me of is like like a pressurized uh container uh, like there's there's just like what you just said before like it, there's magic leaking out like it's just this there's so much ready to burst forth. And so whenever you see this um, like umbrella of light and you hear the sound in Azkaban, it feels like we're holding something that could explode, you know, and we're trying to focus it in on something. Um, and like even the, the appearance of a Patronus at the end of that movie, like it, it's bursting out of this thing. And that's cool. And that works so well for the way, for what the story needed in Azkaban but we need the training montages to be fun. Like this is a moment of camaraderie. This is, we're all in this together. And so just having Patronus is like, they're jumping out and they're swirling around and they're so pretty. And they're like, they're just, we're interacting with our animal friends and that like, it's, it feels like to have done a direct translation of the way that that spell worked in Azkaban here, that, that scene just doesn't, maybe it, it doesn't get across you you couldn't really get across the same feel as as what he wanted and really what the story was kind of going for there and and this this version was more faithful to the books i, I think and I, I love the effect where the last one like starts just fizzles out as on bridge starts breaking through the wall really yeah. a fun detail um did you have anything out of that chad no i mean i i really do like the wand play here i think it's more conducive to good action scenes and maybe that's another issue I have with Priory and Cantatum, aside from the, the book inconsistency of it, is that it just immediately stops everything and they're lingering instead of like making it about who has the best wand work or anything like that. It, 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 and maybe that's intentional. I mean, we want to linger on that duel between Dumbledore and Voldemort. And so we're going to have them lock wands for a second. And I, I understand that from a, a filmmaking perspective, but it, the, that specifically does bother me but just like the normal combat the scene where we're in the room with the veil that's very satisfying and i think it does work a lot better for the dueling aspect and good versus evil aspect than it does for uh, in like the the columbus films which i do love but it, it I, I think the magic here is more appropriate yeah i i do have to add my two cents to the lawn walking um <laughs> the wand locking i have a whole long thing about the um the, oh, the okay. duel. Mm. Uh, okay. but, but I, before we get there I, I do want to talk about uh I, I love the way sirius's death is handled it reminded me a lot of, of just the way of cedric's death where it's like we're in one type of story and then like reality breaks through like we don't kill kids in fun adventure stories and oh no cedric is dead um and that and here like we're having fun the you know, harry and sirius are fighting side by side he's a nice one james and he's got this you know the grin on his face and he disarms uh uh uh, uh malfoy with, Lucius, with, yeah, yeah. with a very, really cool little twirl um yeah and then just bang bellatrix is there he's dead and we're just like, what, did that just happen? Like, we're having. Oh, that destroys me every time. It, 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 it destroys me. I 
I mean, Sirius has always been a favorite character of mine. So just from like a character standpoint, losing him really sucks in this movie, seeing Oldman portray him so well. And that, that, that camaraderie, that relationship built between Harry and Sirius in this movie all of a sudden crumble right after they have this like really great bonding moment and fighting death eaters together. And to the fact that they like look at each other as he wisps away into the veil and Harry watches not only him die, but him disappear. Like any tangible memory of Sirius is gone because he, he's, he's actually gone. And then to have Lupin who was Sirius's friend uh, growing up, close friend, best friend, growing up be the one to hold Harry back and also to be suffering in that anguish of losing Sirius, I think is a really powerful visual thing as well. This is a moment where like, I've had to actively fight against myself. Uh, like I, I don't like book purists and I have to be like, no, I cannot <laughs> let myself be that person. And I think within the movie, it is really well done, but I, because of whenever I was reading it, I there's just something about the way it happens in the book that I, I understand why it can't be completely adapted because it's it's such a hard thing to get across. But like in the book with him, like he, he wasn't even hit by a spell. If I remember correctly, it's just like he's he's basically forced it like he tr I don't know if it's a, like a trip. Bellatrix hits him with a spell. OK, um, but it wasn't Avada Kedavra. It was like I think it was a green flash. Um, it wasn't specific. Was it just like a stunning or something? Like, did was he just stunned yeah, or something? I know what you're talking about, but I, I don't remember whether or not like it wasn't specifically you know Avada Kedavra like she says here. It was. I'm looking it up right now. Um, like it was, I, I think it was I'll a green you know. light. Um, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Where he kind of topples back and like he, Harry's like he's gonna come back at any moment. Because and that's that's the thing that. Uh, what what they're able to get in the movie is because he is kind of carried away. You don't get the body to mourn. You don't get like Harry is. There is something that Harry is robbed of. But man, in the book, because what, it just feels so. It wasn't this killing curse. It it was just he got hit by a spell and was standing in the wrong place and he fell through this. And we're not even sure, like. We don't even know at that point, like, do people die? Is there no way to come back? What is this? It's just the set, like he was there one minute and he's just not. I didn't even like, and he doesn't get to lock eyes with him in the book. It's just, he fell through and he's gone. What, does he come back? What happened? Like, it's just, it is so, like as the book goes on and on and chapter after chapter, I'm like, oh, serious is not, he doesn't, he's not coming back, huh? It's like, just to feel robbed of any explanation of just we don't I don't know robbed is the word that keeps coming back where it's like he's, he's just gone you don't get an explanation you don't get a body you don't get a reason you don't get any of that he's just he was here he felt through he's gone and now you've got to move on and it, I don't know there, I've never felt that kind of confused sadness in any sort of like I don't know, entertainment medium. Like, it's just like, oh man, I, what do I do with this? Uh, and so I do wish that we could have had that, but I get, I think the moment in the film itself is well done. And then moving into the, uh, the Voldemort Dumbledore duel, 
I, I love how just how helpless Harry is once again. Uh, like the moment Voldemort arrives, he, he is so helplessly outcla- outclassed. And th- there's so- something about just once that duel starts and you realize like these aren't just normal wizards. Like that, you know, what, what happened you know, in the previous fight? That was cool. But these guys, they're, they're <laughs> work functioning on a different like almost level of reality the control they have over you know the forces of magic and the forces of nature is is it's it's they're almost like beyond humanity at that point the, how how much mastery they have and it's like that in the book too like when just Dumbledore is doing things that we've never seen before and, and we'll never see again and he just does it like it's nothing i love the duel i i have seen the criticism though uh, that it's kind of like a Pokemon battle, like where they take turns flinging things at each other. And no, it was not very effective. But Which, it, that's that, what that the doesn't... book is like, too. Where he's yeah, like... yeah. It, it doesn't bother me at all. I just think it's a funny criticism. Imagining like av- little little sprites for Dumbledore and <laughs> Voldemort going back and forth. But uh, no, it's really great. And I do love the um, the way that Dumbledore keeps throwing Harry out of the fight. Like, no, get over there. No, get over there. Get out of this. He, he's trying to distance I mean, distance himself in a different way in this, but this time it's like to actually physically protect Harry. And uh, it, it is really great. It almost reminds me of the, and this just instantly occurred to me, the Yoda versus Dooku <laughs> in uh, Attack of the Clones, where where it starts off as a fight and then it turns into Yoda more defending Anakin and Obi as they lie there. Yeah. yeah also yeah. like yeah they, they tried <laughs> they got their butts kicked right <laughs> and now you're just here to you take care of business right uh I, also i love the preamble um again you know dumbledore's here <laughs> the day is saved i just think you know it was foolish of you to come here tonight tom the way he calls him tom like in other, like previously he never you know he always he never played by the he who must not be named game he he called him Voldemort. Like he would never, he was always trying to undermine the mystique that Voldemort was building around himself. And to Voldemort himself, he just, he just calls him Tom. Like he's all, he always just saying, you are just a man. I didn't know mm-hmm. you as a child. I was your teacher. Like you, you, you're not fooling me. And for so- they get it right here. And then I wish they got it right in Deathly Hallows part two, but I'm, I'm sorry. Keep throwing in discussion, but uh, uh, that's something that I wish Harry had done in the ending, but he yeah. doesn't. Um, we'll, we'll, not really. We'll have a lot to say about that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I also want to just jump in real quick and say I admire your proper French pronunciation of Voldemort. <laughs> I, I, I I always pronounce the T at the end because I'm a pleb or whatever. But you you do. Say I think it it's Jim Dale's pronunciation. So that's all. Oh, all, all, yeah. all my pronunciations are Jim Dale's. <laughs> Well, more M-O-R-T, I, I think that's the way it's spelled, at least in French, is the word for death. Ah. So it is Voldemort, but I say Voldemort because that's just what I do. But yeah, I, I just like wanted there. to say I admire that. <laughs> I, I, I always admire it. And, and I know you say you don't like <laughs> the prior rank and Tatum, the ones joining. But for me, it's like that was never that wasn't all that well established in the film. So they kind of get around it. Uh, as far as like, if you don't know what it means in the book, uh, but the, just the shot zooming across the um, the ministry floor as you see them in the distance, it's just the, the the power that you feel as the wands are joining and the 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 molten whatever that is like splattering the floor, and just the, sh- the shoots of lightning 
just destroying the wall around Harry. It's, it's, it's so freaking cool. I just, it, it's cool. I don't it's care. Cool. I, like, I, like, I, I will admit it is cool to uh, look at. Um, but and just the way you talked about how it was kind of a trade off of blows. I, I like that. Cause we're, it feels almost like each combatant is t- taking and absorbing whatever is being thrown at them, transforming it and throwing it back. It, it gets back into like that, that kind of Quaron view of magic where it's, it's, we're channeling forces. Like where he, he throws the fire at him. He transforms it, sends it back. Uh, he sends the, the he sends the, the, just the black, whatever that is like a black hole at them. They send it back that he gathers it, gathers it together and blows out the atrium. It's, is is the powers this the flow of power kind of coming and transforming as each wizard you know takes it and puts his own spin on it. it's just it's so imaginative and wild um yeah what do you think james oh, do we lose james again yeah <laughs> well then <laughs> it looks like we lost james uh his internet's going in and out uh so we'll just keep talking um what 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 are, you, what are your thoughts overall on this duel it, it really is very cool and it, it's almost I don't want to call it like, uh, no, I'm not going to use that phrase. <laughs> it's almost like a contest. They're going back and forth and it's like, no, I'm the greater wizard. No, I'm the greater wizard. No, I'm the greater wizard. It's just back and forth. Like, look what I can do kind of thing. There, There's definitely a threat to all of it. It's not just for showmanship, but I mean, they are showing off a whole lot. Yeah. Um, but when you are a titan of your craft, like both of these wizards are, then that almost is what it has to come to. Dumbledore and Voldemort don't need to use Expelliarmus to to fight each other. They they have like real magical weapon weaponry at their disposal, and they're going to show it off because that's what it takes for people of this status, for people of this ability to have a legitimate confrontation. Mm-hmm. One effect that just sticks in my mind is is the ball of water. Just the weird whistling sound comes with it, and just the, the way. Um, uh, Dumbledore is like cupping his hand and he has his wand like in his hand as if he's molding mm. it himself. It's just, it's just so cool. Like, and as I say, it's just like intuitive. Like that visual makes sense with the spell we're seeing. Yeah, it's it, it just this scene just blows me away. I, I think I watched it like three or four times last <laughs> night. I just kept rewinding back. It's like I gotta see that again. And it's it's on we haven't talked a whole lot about the music, but it's unscored. And so mm-hmm. it's really just like about the the colossal efforts of one man yes. versus the other. And I really like that. I, I always admire when a a filmmaking team and composer can pick good moments to not score. And the sound design doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. need any music the, the shattering the glass the whispering as like fly the glass flies through the air and how it turns to sand it's it sounds so mm-hmm. great and I, I i like how subtly they play the possession like if you've watched many horror movies you know how wild possession scenes can go um this one it was just kind of flashes of imagery and the sound and just you showing pictures and flashbacks it was it was very simple but we we still get all the emotion there and uh, the hooper's really wonderful music and something that just occurred to me when harry's lying there on the ground possessed and dumbledore comes up and says it's about how you're different it's not about how you're alike why would dumbledore offer that specific encouragement unless he was privy to the information that Harry was feeling a certain way about him and Voldemort's connection. Well, Chamber of Secrets, we have that whole conversation um, at the end mm-hmm. where he's like, you know, I, where Harry's listing off his, the similarities between him and 
mm-hmm. Voldemort. And he's like, you know, it's your choices and all that. Um, well, there's something that occurred to me is that Dumbledore has been keeping a closer eye on Harry this year than Harry would have known. And maybe just maybe he was around the corner when Harry and Sirius were having their moment at Grimmauld Place over Christmas break. Or Sirius like, told him. Or, or, or Sirius told him, exactly. And so I, I like that or that Dumbledore was keeping tabs on Harry and he knew that this particular issue was bothering him and it's the encouragement he needs right now to fight out of it. Yeah, it always feels like a safe assumption that Dumbledore is keeping closer tabs than we think on right. pretty much everything. <laughs> um, it's true. And, and I, 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 I got to eat my words. Last week or last episode, I, I said I, I wasn't in love with uh, Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. I thought he was very good, but I love him here. <laughs> I think like, he's not as kind of wild and erratic as he was in in, in Goblet of Fire, uh, just the presence he has, um, he, he's got that just the wild animalistic thing kind of underneath him, but just the way he, how the, the pure contempt that he just treats the rest of the world with around him. Um, and again, the, the design is so good. Um, yeah, I, I, I got any of my words. I, I do love him here. We'll see, we'll see how it goes <laughs> moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I really like Ray Fiennes as as Voldemort as well. I, I think the the menace that he shows is appropriate. I, I think he he communicates the evil of the character without being as outright scary as he's kind of described in the books. And I know that was sort of an intentional design choice uh, for a Goblet of Fire, I believe. Like they 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 sort of de-scaried him just a little bit, so it wasn't absolutely traumatic to see him on the screen. Like, I think he was supposed to have like red eyes and like more of like more of a snake like appearance. Um, but I, I think they, they did it just enough that it's unsettling how he looks human, but not quite human. And uh, he, he definitely displays those attributes like the snake like attributes. We see him like breathing fire and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, are, are you a little underwhelmed by the ending? Like I am. Um, like, it's not quite like Goblet of Fire movie level where it's just like, oh, this horrible traumatic thing happens. And then. You know, end of school we're going home um uh, this one it does give us uh, like a bit of that scene between harry and Voldemort. i mean not Voldemort, harry and, and a dumbledore where they're t- where he's telling him a little bit about um the nature of their relationship and like his destiny and all of that but i feel like there's, there's just this real pallor over the over the end of the book and just the trauma harry's been through and the enormous confrontation he has with dumbledore and it's it doesn't feel as momentous in the end of this like it's not as abrupt as goblet of fire but it does kind of feel like you know the battle's done we're going home kind of thing yeah again it's been a long time since i've read the book um i don't remember how hopeful or not hopeful it it actually ends but it does seem like here they were like let's end on a somewhat hopeful note and so we have that speech where they're walking along or walking away from hogwarts and harry's like yeah, I, I figured out it was something Dumbledore said. We've got something that's worth fighting for. And it's like, yay, friendship. And so th- there is a little bit of like, well, you just also lost your last family member and uh, Voldemort is back. And yeah, I guess y- you you and Dumbledore are legitimized by the Daily Prophet and by the ministry now. But is that really a happy thing when it means that everybody knows that Dumbledore, that Voldemort is actually back now? Um, so it, it is a little bit of a strange tonal ending to end on the hope, especially considering what we know lies ahead with it having to end with one or the other's death. And you, you know, it's not going to be Harry's death, but still th- there's a, there's a big weight to Harry finding out 
one of us has to kill each other. And having only just 10 minutes before seen Harry unable to to kill Bellatrix at the taunting of Voldemort. The the book does, I think it does end a little more hopefully, but it also has like three or four chapters after that to kind of play it out. Um, and you also see Harry destroy Dumbledore's office in the process. Mm-hmm. So you get to see like he, he really is fighting through a lot of things. Yeah, that, that, that conversation is truly momentous in like the in the scope of what of Harry Potter, like the revelation of Dumbledore's fallibility, but also Harry's new destiny going forward um, with the prophecy and all that. It, it feels very truncated. It's there, but it never really registers for me. Uh, I continue to admire the the set design and the attention to detail of the whole production team. Um, there are things that are purely there because either they didn't have time for them in the film or because purely the people who are making it are fans of the books and they wanted something to leave there as nuggets for the readers. Uh, we have the mention of Phineas Nagellus, who's a major character that gets cut from the remaining two books, pretty much. Um, he's the, one of the portraits in the headmaster's office. Uh, we get the the portrait of Sirius's mother in Grimmauld Place is there. We don't actually see her, but creature is there tending to her and talking to her. And that's not explained. right? <laughs> it's not explained in the movie, but again, book fans know, hey, uh, that's pretty cool. That's the portrait. And um there's lots of little nuggets like that. Um, yeah, that's a good example of like a real, like good Easter egg where it's like not calling too much mm-hmm. attention to itself, but if you know, you know. Exactly. And I mean, I, I, I really, I, I, I like this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't think of any other like specific things I want to mention because I think we've, we've talked about a lot of them, but, um, or, well, I guess we, a couple more quick things. I mentioned earlier that there were a few new characters in this movie that were perfectly cast and we talked about how umbridge was one of them bellatrix was bellatrix lestrange i don't think she had even appeared before this had she like we hadn't gotten that so. one in picture yeah so this was our first appearance of helena bottom carter as bellatrix and i mean bonkers <laughs> appropriately right off the bat she plays that character so well uh james you back yes sorry i have no idea what went wrong with it but it seems to be back right now all right, we kind of passed over the duel, but uh, did you have anything to add about the whole climax and the after the climax before we move on to the score? Yeah, so real quick, um, just about the uh, the wands locking. Uh, for the longest time, I kind of heard the complaint where it's like, oh, it's it's like the Force Lightning locking in Star Wars where it's like, it meets and it's just whoever points harder. <laughs> like it's... It's so I had heard the joke like it's very cinematically like just not compelling, um, and I expected to think that the whole time because I'm like, man, people just it's like, oh, we, you got your your little lasers are locked, and we stand around for a bit. But I watched it, and then I was like, guys, magic <laughs> is molten lava. It's dripping everywhere. Like, what are you like? I don't know. It just it felt like years of memes just washed. Like I don't know what you guys are talking about, man. It's splashing everywhere. It's the coolest thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, there's something about like just these bright greens and reds just splashing all over the planet. I'm like that is, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm a dumb person who's easily entertained <laughs> by bright colors. And I'm like, man, I don't know. That looks so cool. So, yeah, we both acknowledged that it looks very cool. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm I'm there on that. 
Uh, and maybe I just think it looks so cool that I haven't even given any sort of valid reasons to not love it any like the time of day because I'm like I don't even want to think about why it might not work because it looks too cool to entertain and then, but like what I love about the duel after that is is what Gabe said like right at the beginning whenever he talked about it which is it feels like we just took like eight steps up like a ladder of power like there is something completely different going on and one of my favorite visuals of the entire series is the swirling ball of water just going over like this reflective black flooring that is so just immediately cool and that and i i like kind of like the turn basedness of it of like here's what i can do and here's how i defend that and then now it's my turn now this is what i do and it's it's just like these awesome displays of a mastery that we have not seen before. And yeah, I, oh man, I think it's such a cool, I think the awesome setting also just helps it. Just like having that happen at the ministry with all of these colors and with the lights reflecting off of the walls and the floors like that. It's just, it's so cool. It, it reminds me of the interiors of J.J. Abrams' Star Destroyers. The, just the really yes. glossy black uh, I love that reflection, the reflective black color. Um, yes, a couple, a couple things that we got to mention before we close out. Uh, Ivana Lynch as Luna Lovegood. Yes, that's the other one. Uh, you're just as sane as I am. I love that. Like, like she is aware that everyone thinks she's a little weird, but I think like she's only like ten percent aware of how crazy they think she is. Like, she's mm -hmm. operating on this other plane of reality, and it's, it's just so wonderful. Yeah, Ivana was a a Harry Potter fan who auditioned. Like she she was like one of the visitors of MuggleNet back oh, in the day, wow. like I was, and that's how she found out about the whole casting opportunity. And I I think I don't know the whole story, but her and J.K. Rowling had some sort of correspondence like years before this, just like be a fan letter or something. And it was almost like a mentor role that didn't have any influence on her getting hired, but it was just like a weird coincidence. Look that story out because it is really interesting, but. Uh, the the way she is bought into the character, um, uh, she made the charm and the radish necklace or the radish earrings herself, mm -hmm. Ivana did. Um, and she is so perfect as an outsider for Harry to identify with in the book and in the movie where he feels like an outsider. And she helps him as a lifelong outsider herself to to come to terms with loss and to think about having different perspectives and she's odd, but she's not really played for laughs as you think a character like her might be. And I really admire that they they took her oddities seriously. There's a, yeah, there's a real pathos to her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the introduction, you know, everyone, this is Looney. Luna love <laughs> just the, the <laughs> horror on Hermione's face. And, and uh, Luna doesn't even notice. Right. <laughs> and it's such a good introduction because like it's it's just, it's there's so much history of like what the girls are saying, like when they're you know hanging out together, between you know, like it's, it's it's such a good introduction. It's such an odd character. Uh, I don't know. I don't know any criticisms I might have of her would also are not allowed. be. <laughs> well, there you go. Never mind. Uh, I was just gonna say any any that there might be applied just as much to the book. There there are some times where I'm like. I, you're out of a, you're just so far out of another world. It, the the lion hat starts <laughs> to get a little crazy to me, 
but uh, I do like a lot of what she does bring to it. I, and I love how, I don't know, one thing that I do really appreciate about what Yates does with the film is it doesn't join the, like, other students in mocking her. Like, the movie's not poking fun at her. Other people, like, people within the movie might be. But, but like you said, Chad, like, it's, she, the movie takes her seriously. Yeah, um, a <laughs> fun little moment from I'm watching, you know, just because you have the emotional range of a teaspoon. Uh, <laughs> and then a funny Rupert Grant line. I, I just got to you know, give them little highlights. We haven't talked about them all. You know, look on the bright side. At least you can't be worse than old Toadface. Thanks, Ron. I'm here for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> While we're just highlighting some things about them real quick. So I, I love Ron's maturity in this movie a lot, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. especially after being so annoyed with him from Goblet of Fire. I like it, it's a role reversal in that he's having to, you know, bear the brunt of, of Harry lashing out. But the moment where Harry screams at him and he's just like, well, I guess I'll leave you to it. And he just like he doesn't meet him there at that level. He just he knows what Harry's going through. And he says, okay. And he backs down. I'm like, it's such such a perfect little character moment. It's not long. It's not, but it's just the fact that Ron can read Harry and and understand what he's going through to the point of like, I, okay, you need your time. I'll leave. For Ron Weasley to have done that at this point, I'm like, ah, beautiful character growth. You love to see it. And standing up to Seamus for Harry. Yes, I love that moment. when he's like, I do Unhesitatingly, yeah. The whole, I, I think, he's the last to pick up on it in Goblet of Fire and the yeah. first to defend him here. Yeah, I think he is definitely making up for some of the, the strife that he put both Harry and Hermione through in the previous year. Um, <laughs> Many years for Hermione. <laughs> and it, it seeing both Ron and Hermione be such good friends to Harry when he's not being the best friend back to them because they understand exactly what he's going through and that they're just waiting for him to to come to terms with it all on his own and to be ready to to comfort him when they when when he needs it and to to still be just as steadfast friends when he's on the other side of it as they were to begin with um and they're not like ignoring him in the meantime they're they're there and they're available and uh they, they I, I'm, I'm glad we got to talk at least a little bit about both ron and hermione because i love them in this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> alan rickman gets some really great deliveries you know, you applied first for the defense against the dark arts job yes <laughs> and you were unsuccessful <laughs> obviously obviously <laughs> it reminded me of our in our galaxy quest you know, by grab Thor's hammer what a savings! <laughs> like, just that, that, like oh, he's dying inside, kind of. And and man, what a terrible teacher Snape is, you know. Like in in all the scenes with Occlumency, I mean, I say all of them. There's like two, maybe three. We never see any actual instruction or help. Just like pure invasion and vehemence. And I mean, I guess he he's kind of a good guy in the end because presumably the the order shows up at the department of mysteries because he decodes harry's message in umbridge's office and does send the help so yay you you did a good job snape but i mean <laughs> let, let's not erase the fact that snape is is a terrible person yes yes <laughs> thank you so. uh, the, no matter what snape great. is a terrible person oh, he has some redeemable things about him but he is a terrible yeah. person last two guys uh uh, Mark Williams as Arthur Weasley just continues to be oh. wonderful. As the Muggles say, 
truth will out. <laughs> like, yes. It's just the delight he has <laughs> with the interacting with the muggle world. Um, and Fred and George Weasley, I like them again. They were horrible in <laughs> Goblet of Fire. Uh, and just a one little moment where they're comforting the kid after his detention with Umbridge. And it's just kind of so happening sweet. in the background. And they're just like, you're like, oh yeah, they're, they're kind of just, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're troublemakers, but they're also like good, decent people. Lovely little moment. And then the fireworks. The fireworks <sighs> scene is so great. And I'm so, I'm so sad that Peeves does not exist in this film franchise because the, like, I think might be the best line like of just like snark and fun in the whole series is give her hell for us. <laughs> salutes, And we don't get it. We don't get it because there's no peeves to give her yeah. hell, but I, I but wish it is wish. just a moment of joyous rebellion. And anarchy. Oh, it is. It is still a fantastic scene with that line there. Flitwick's little fist pump. <laughs> it's just the icing on the cake. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving into the score. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Nicholas Hooper's uh, introduction to the series? Oh, thank goodness. I mean, okay, maybe this is an, unpro- uh, an unpopular opinion. I know that there's a lot of dislike for Goblin of Fire. That's pretty universal for most people, I think. Um, but Patrick Doyle's score is usually, from what I've seen, pretty well liked. Um, but I have never been one of those mm-hmm. people. I-, I think it's pretty music on its own. I think it's good music. I like Patrick Doyle as a composer, but I never thought that the music for Goblet of Fire fit very well into the established Harry Potter universe that, that Williams set up and uh, maybe say for like one or two tracks. Like I think maybe like the Hogwarts forever, not the Hogwarts forever, but the, uh, the March that they play at uh, the, the third task. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. It's Hogwarts March, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, so after that, I, I really like Hooper's score for this one. I think it's, it's a return to the, the sort of whimsy of uh, what Williams brought to the franchise. Um, the opening, even the opening title music, like it's very string heavy in uh, the, the Goblet of Fire at the beginning. I don't, I don't really like that arrangement of Hedwig's theme, but the, the opening title music here of Hedwig's theme is much more in the, the Williams vein of things. And then we get the order takes flight from mm-hmm. perfect drive. And it's just, this like rousing. It's so great. Are the best. They are, they are very good. And I mean, I have lots of specific moments, like the music, as we enter the ministry for the first time, as we're heading to the hearing, it properly communicates both the, the grandeur of the setting that we're in and all the, that architecture, we were talking about but also the coldness and the darkness of it um then when we get to the great hall at hogwarts for the first time you hear the warmth of the music as harry is back to his real home even though maybe he's feeling a little bit of coldness to it uh the the dumbledore's army music i i, I as we were as we were waiting on james's internet to connect earlier i was like i, I was singing the dumbledore's army music i, lo- I love that and then uh to, to have the the moment we were just talking about fireworks scored so uh joyously is really great and if you listen to the track on album there's this really cool electric mm-hmm. guitar solo too but i'm, I'm kind of glad that didn't make it what, into the film because that does feel a little bit it's, out of it's place there. It's, it's the drag you hear it but the mostly dry is the dragon coming down right the, the mixing is really yeah. low on the score in that particular moment just the, the, the just the joyous bubbly umbrage music with just a tiny hint of menace mm-hmm. underneath um the possession the track uh, that plays over harry's possession just a really 
like beautiful, painful kind of memory like thing. Um, the, the flight of the order of the Phoenix. I just like the, there's so many movies where like the flying music is the best music in this score. And just, I, I love like <laughs> when a composer can just kind of let loose into the joy of flight. Um, yeah. Like Buckbeak's mm-hmm. flight is one of the best tracks from uh prisoner. Exactly. Um, all right. Uh, any thoughts on the score, James? Uh, not to match y'all's. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that this of the two Hooper scores we have, this is not my favorite. I like the Half Blood Prince music a little bit more, but I do think that this is a nice return to the way music should sound in Harry Potter. In I thought opinion. the Goblet of Fire is like that. It it matches the movie because the movie is insane. <laughs> but I like I like yeah. Doyle at music better than I like Newell at movies. So it's really lovely music to listen to. Yeah. But yeah, it's not very Harry Potter ish. Right. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm got a kindred spirit there at least uh <laughs> all right so moving into our star rating and ranking for the series so far uh have you figured out a ranking yet <laughs> Chad? I, I think i think i have a ranking you'll, you um, only have to do the first five for now because you'll come back later and we'll, we'll do the rest of the series oh i only um, have to do the first five that i have to figure out okay <laughs> or, or, or you can give them all if you want well, i i don't know if I, i'll have my, i will say i think i think and i need to do a full series rewatch for the first time in a long time i think half blood prince is the one that i typically go to i'm like you know what i think that might be my favorite so i i think that's what i have as number one in the grand scheme of theme things i would put this one at four or five um i think i would rank the first harry potter film uh higher than this and prisoner of azkaban obviously higher than this um I honestly might place this higher than Deathly Hallows Part Two for sure because I have a couple of serious issues with that film. Um, but overall, this like it's really well esteemed in my mind. I, I really like this. I if I gave it a star rating, just top of my mind, I would give it maybe four stars. I think seems fair um, for the the return to form for the series and the way it establishes. Uh, a tone and a consistency for the rest of the series that uh, Yates brings. All right. And what about you, James? Uh, So for rating, uh, I did, I ended up getting up to the, the four out of five. Um, I really do like it a lot. There's one last thing that I do want to highlight about it that I, I didn't really get to. I, I love how it handles a post return of Voldemort world um whether it's like just them noticing the clouds brewing or a line that I really love that I didn't mention uh in Harry's last moment before he leaves when he's talking to um Sirius whenever he asks you know do you really think there's going to be a war and Sirius is giving it like (laughs) serious thought and uh and his delivery of the line I think is just so good where he just says it feels like it did before mm-hmm. and like there's something so powerful about that just cedric has died voldemort is back and all the people who went through this before whether it's him right then or hagrid looking at the window to see the storms and he's like it's getting like it was before mm-hmm. the literal and figurative storm that's coming is palpable to me in this movie uh and i really like that a lot so when it comes to ranking, I actually had a hard time with this one. Uh, because number one is very obviously Azkaban at this point. Um, 
And number two is where I had I had a hard time figuring out whether I like this or Chamber of Secrets more because I just I think Chamber of Secrets is such a vibe. It's such a cool Halloween whodunit kind of fun dark corridors. It's I don't I have so much fun with that movie's feel, and I think it actually might have less problems than I think this one might have. I, I if I were to make a list of issues I have. I think the Order of the Phoenix runs longer, but I also feel like Order of the Phoenix's highs are definitely a good bit higher. Uh, and the thing that ultimately pushed me over to giving it to Order of the Phoenix is um, is just Harry and the tr- like. I his his struggle here is just so much more thematically involved than it is in Chamber of Secrets. His growth is so much more powerful than it is there and Radcliffe is just I mean he's a real actor at this point and so despite the fact that I've got like it's got these pacing issues and these other things that might kind of nag at me um it's just got a real its strengths are really strong and so I go number one Azkaban number two uh Order of the Phoenix number three Chamber of Secrets number four Sorcerer's Stone number five uh Goblet of Fire um, yeah, so for me, I, I'm torn between three and a half and four stars. Like on this last viewing, my heart is kind of saying four stars, but also my head's kind of saying three and a half because of some of the issues. So I'm going to go with 3.75. Um, You've been doing I, that I, a lot lately. <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, That's not a letterbox. Uh, you went 2.75. It's my like show, okay? I make the rules. Uh, yeah, but I, I, it's, it is such a fun, confident, easy movie to watch. I think it's, it's just very intelligent. Yates comes in, puts a very strong stamp. And this is where the series, like, it finally feels like this is, we found it's, it's found its stride for better or worse. Like this is what's going to be going forward. We're not whiplashing between all kinds of different creative visions going forward. It's just a really fun movie, but the, the pacing issues, particularly in the first 20 minutes do hurt it for me and kind of undermine. And then I think the ending is a little weak, uh, after the, after the climax. So my ranking is a uh, prisoner of Azkaban, number one, number two, chamber of secrets, number three, order of the Phoenix, number four, sorcerer's stone and five goblet of fire. Of course. Um, so for the film's box office, it made uh, 292 million domestically and 646 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 942 million on its between 150 and 200 million dollar budget. Uh, it stands at number five in the series domestically. Uh, but however, like this, this film, Goblet of Fire, Deathly Dolls Part One, and, and Half Blood Prince all made within the same twelve million dollar range. So that kind of ranking them there really isn't that significant. Like they all, like the, the series found its stride as far as the domestic box office and, and kind of stayed super high. Um, it stands at number four uh, worldwide, underneath Deathly Hallows Part Two, Sorcerer's Stone, and Deathly Hallows Part One. And these last four films all made over nine hundred million. Um, and, and then like only one in the entire series did even did under 700 million. So like just, this was a money printing machine for Warner brothers. Uh, makes sense. They wanted to keep it going. And as far as the worldwide box office for 2007, it stands at number two underneath only Pirates of the Caribbean at world's end. Um, and domestically it's at number five underneath Spider-Man three, Shrek the third transformers and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean at world's end. And as far as the critical reception, it holds a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 71 on Metacritic, which puts it on, like in the middle or lower end of the, like middle to lower end of the series. Um, it seems, to, as far as critically, it seems to be well-liked. 
Uh, but reading through a lot of the snippets, like the praise doesn't seem to be particularly effusive. Like even Goblet of Fire seemed to get at least more initial excitement out of critics. People seem to like it was kind of lean, mean, and very fun. Uh, and, and pushing the series into you know much into darker and more mature uh, elements while still being very enjoyable. Uh, it seems like as far as like the reception, like this is where the series is really hitting its stride. Um, like it's each each previous film feels like a both a departure and an evolution for the series from the previous film. And then by the time we get to Order of the Phoenix, like it's kind of at least as far as like the quality of the films and just the style, it seems to be kind of smooth sailing from here on out. Like this is where the series really, you know, picks a lane and stays in it. Which I think is depend like when you're reading reviews, like that could be that's sometimes viewed as a positive, like, oh, oh, like, you know, it's, it's really getting consistent. I like this. And then other critics are like, oh, it's kind of getting same old, same old. Uh, I don't like it. So it kind of depends on the critic's taste as, as far as to whether the finding that lane of consistency is a positive or a negative. So moving to this discussion of this film's legacy, uh, how do you feel that this film is kind of, is viewed among the larger Harry Potter fandom, Chad? I think this is one of the more well-loved ones. Um, I think if people, I'm trying to think what audience I'm thinking of particularly, like, I think this one would stand up pretty well with book fans um, for the most part, especially in contrast to Half-Blood Prince. I think they they pair kind of nicely together, uh, but Half-Blood Prince has a lot of things that people are actively angry about getting cut out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if there's that many specific things that I can think of right off the top of my head in order of the Phoenix that people are angry. Like, why didn't you leave this in? Why didn't you leave this in? And there, there are certainly those things. It is the longest book and uh, all that, but at least as an introduction to a new director and a more consistent vision and um, that kind of thing, I, I think, and, and the new styles that Yates brings along with him, and the newspaper stuff. I, I think people look at all those things fondly. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that that's my general feeling at least is that this is pretty well liked. Yeah. I don't, I don't know of anyone who dislikes this movie, like all the other films, except for like the first and last, I know people who, like that has this group of haters. They hate it for this reason. Like, I don't know about anybody who dislikes order of the Phoenix. It seems like it's a really fun movie. Um, like it, it doesn't, like scrolling through like letterbox list i don't generally see it finding its way to like on the top very often but it does seem to be on like the t within the top half pretty much most of the time um it does seem to get a little lost in the shuffle sometimes of like more like more more dis distinctive films but yeah it seems like it just seemed to be very well liked what's your impression james uh i i see a lot of love for it um it's like you said it, it's rare to ever see anybody who has any sort of significant issues with it. Everybody really likes it. And I've actually, I have seen it on, uh, at the top of, uh, a, a notable amount, I guess, and enough to be like, well, there's maybe a pattern. It's, it's one of the movies that you, I, I that I see at the top of lists where it's like, you're never really going to see chamber of secrets at the very but you top. should. No, I'm talking about the very top. <laughs> I love Chamber of Secrets, but you're not you're not going to see it at the top. You're not going to see you rarely you, you shouldn't see Goblet of Fire at the top. There, but you do. <laughs> um, you should. 
<laughs> but I, I'd like to say is it gen it seems like an agreeable fan favorite. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's one that like everybody just kind of likes a lot, and, it, and it's rarely ever just yeah it's okay. It's like most people I know. Like, oh, yeah, that's one of the better ones. All right. So that was our review of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd ask you again to please uh, take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, You can like us on Facebook at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Franchised Pod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. Thanks for coming on, Chad. Uh, Where can people follow you if they want to just see what you're up to online? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's always a good time to talk about movies and then not have to edit afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, I it can be found mostly on Twitter. If you want to interact with me, I am at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. I also have my own podcast. Uh, there is the movie-related one um, called Cinescope. It has been on a bit of a hiatus, but I am working on getting that back soon because I love doing it. I also have a more active one called Crossroads of Destiny, which is all about the Avatar, the last airbender universe. Hey, there's um, a movie which, there. What are you talking there, about? There, there's a movie there. Yes. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about it soon. And it it may or may not be not very good. <laughs> no. But uh, I, I really love that show. And I, I would love if uh, that uh, you guys check that out because I'm really passionate about that show and it doesn't have a huge listener base at the moment, but uh, who knows one day it might. So th- those are the main places to find me. All right, James. Uh, so where can people follow you online? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's JL H-A-M-R-I. You can also find the both of us as admins over on the outer room, a Star Wars group. I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. You can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I make these movie-based music videos and uh, trailer mashups and other cool stuff like that. And next week, uh, we're talking about a personal favorite of mine from the series, and one I think is probably tied with Chamber of Secrets as one of the most underappreciated. It is the somber and uh, weirdly goofy Half-Blood Prince. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, to watching this again just so separated from the the film I last watched before it and after it because we when we started this marathon we were like boom 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 and so the Yates era really started to kind of like blend together mm. um like there were things that I was waiting to happen in whenever I was watching Lord of the Phoenix I'm like oh wait that doesn't happen in this one and so I'm I'm looking forward to just watching it on its own so until next week we will see you in the sequel You may not like him, Minister, but you can't deny Dumbledore's got style.